Right now, switch your family to T-Mobile and get four lines for $25 a line with AutoPay and 5G access included on America's largest 5G network. So don't wait. Get unlimited and nationwide 5G access for the whole family for just $25 a line. Visit a T-Mobile store or T-Mobile.com today. Plus taxes and fees. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using over 50 gigs a month due to data prioritization. Video at 480p. Unlimited while on our network. Qualifying credit and full plus lines required. Capable device required for 5G. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain features. See T-Mobile.com. What's going on, folks? Thanks for hitting that download button and checking out a brand new episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade, your one-stop shop for toys, tech, and talk with some assembly required. I'm your host, Rich, and if this is your first time checking out an episode, first of all, welcome. Second, a bit about what we do here. Toys and Tech of the Trade is an interview series where we sit down with content creators, entrepreneurs, and just awesome folks that are on our radar and discuss the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they use to run their businesses create their content, and overall, be more productive. When it comes to toys, we go well beyond action figures, Funko Pops, the usual stuff, and talk about some of the other stuff that people consider their toys, whether it's collecting swords or working on cars or going as deep as collecting kitchen knives. You'd be surprised what people consider their toys, and we embrace that definition here beyond just the action figures and the usual stuff. Now, before we get to this week's guest, I did want to get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way. Uh, First off, I'd like to really extend my thanks to all of our listeners across the RageWorks Network checking out all of our shows. With COVID-19 and so many people sitting at home, a lot of people aren't enjoying our shows on their commute, and we are keeping them entertained while they work from home or watch their kids or just walk around the park or walk around the neighborhood to keep themselves fit and occupied. And I'm glad that my voice and the voice of all of our other hosts can keep you guys sane, entertained, and maybe bring a smile to your face during these crazy, crazy times. Um, As someone who's been sitting home with my family for the last three months, it's, it's definitely been an interesting and humbling experience. Number one, obviously, because I need to keep myself busy. Number two, you know, I have small, some small children in my house, immunocompromised people in my house. So there's always something that is on my mind, especially with what's been going on, you know, making sure that there's masks, gloves, everything is sanitized, being the only one for the last three months, making grocery runs, et cetera, just to keep my family safe. It's been, uh, it's been crazy. It's been crazy for myself and many of us. I know a lot of our hosts are doing the same thing or even more so some are essential workers and we're just making do so i really really appreciate not only our dedicated team of hosts on the rageworks network but all of you guys the listeners that are allowing us to beam into your homes your cars and right into your eardrums uh on a weekly basis for some of us and on a bi-weekly basis when it comes to toys and tech of the trade we really couldn't do what we do without you guys, the listeners, and we truly, truly appreciate each and every one of you. And I wanted to put that out there before getting to anything else, because with everything that's been going on, it's very easy to lose sight of what brought us here to the dance, so to speak. And that would be you guys, the listeners that tune in every week and consume our content. Many of you reach out, whether it's 
through email, social media, etc. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. Um, for those that are taking the time to rate our shows on iTunes, etc., and write reviews, we really, really appreciate that as well. Um, I know a lot of people were very, very excited about our Father's Day gift guide. It was something I kind of did spur of the moment, but we definitely want to try and do more of those. I am debating doing a back to school gift guide, which is going to be interesting because back to school is not going to probably be as the, the, the usual back to school that we have been used to over the last few years, especially if we are not fully out of the woods yet with COVID-19, but that's something that's definitely on the horizon. We're probably going to be doing something like that towards the end of August or maybe in the beginning of August. We'll see how our guest lineup goes for the for the next two months. I think with everything going on, the gift guides are a nice way for us to share a lot of things that we usually don't touch on in some of our other shows. And our guests, obviously, they come from different walks of life. They have different tools and tech that they use. But sometimes there's other things that are out there that people may want to look for that we we just don't discuss. So I think the gift guides are definitely going to be something that are going to stay around. I know some people like more of the written stuff that we do on the Rageworks site. We're still going to keep doing that too, but I like doing the uh, the audio gift guides just because it lets me share more of the personal opinion side of things when it comes to product recommendations. And I think that just helps when it comes to endorsing or not endorsing a product. I think that hearing it directly from somebody versus reading it sometimes allows you to hear a bit more of that emotional investment. So as long as you guys keep asking for them and consuming them, we'll definitely keep doing the gift guides. All right. The last bit of housekeeping, we have some great guests. There might be an extra show in the month of July just because of some guests that have some time constraints. So you may be seeing an extra episode versus the two that we usually do in a month. There might be a third in there. We'll see what happens. But as always, keep it locked to Rageworks for all of that stuff. The other thing I did want to mention is that Rageworks has a YouTube channel. I know that some people like to check out the shows on YouTube and it's definitely growing, but you know, we're still not there. We want to try and hit a thousand subs, uh, by the end of the year. So by all means, if you are consuming our podcasts via YouTube and you haven't subscribed yet, definitely hit us up. Rageworks.net slash YouTube is a nice, easy way to show your support and stay up to date with all the stuff we're doing. We're going to do more product reviews and more stuff on the YouTube channel now that there's a little bit more free time in my schedule. So you're going to see some toy reviews, some tech stuff, all the usual stuff that we cover on the Rageworks brand will be on the YouTube channel. So without any further ado, we're going to turn it over to this week's guest, actor, stuntman, martial artist, Dylan Hintz. Let's turn it over to him and learn about the toys and tech of his trade. My guest this week has probably one of the coolest careers uh, out of all the guests we've talked to in quite some time. Imagine waking up and instead of punching a clock, you're punching someone in the face. You're jumping through glass. You are dodging bullets. You're working with swords and prop guns and different things. My guest this week is entrepreneur, stunt coordinator, and actor Dylan Hintz. Dylan, thanks for taking time to sit down with us and chop it up on this episode. Well, thank you for having me, Rich. Uh, you know, this is a long time coming for us, so uh, it's good to finally get it done, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I've been, you know, I've been following your your work since we connected, and 
just seeing so much of the stuff that you you work on and you're into, especially as someone who was into martial arts growing up, is a huge action mm-hmm. movie buff, loves anime, loves video games. I saw a lot of commonalities. So I was really, really excited when we got to schedule this. And, you know, you have an extensive background in martial arts. You know, Savat, which not too many people I know know that martial art. You uh, know uh, Kali stick fighting, Kung Fu, Tai Chi. You have a, a great background that really amplifies a lot of your other work. And I want to kind of start there and get into your origin story. Like what drew you to martial arts? Uh, when did you start training, et cetera? Um, I started training. So, I mean, this is funny. It's like uh, out of all the martial arts that I do, it was cool how you just listed all of them. It's like the, the only ones I haven't really done at least full time for a little while are like Taekwondo and karate. And it's, it's like, I haven't done those two, like most popular martial arts. I've done little bits of them here and there. Um, but, uh, but I did start with karate when I was about seven years old. My parents took me to somebody's, uh, basement dojo school. It was in the suburbs of Maryland. And I went and I trained for a few months and then I cried during my first belt test because they gave another kid their belt before they gave me my belt after <laughs> passing it. And I thought I wasn't going to get it. Wow. And I was a very emotional little kid and my parents talked to the teacher and the, I think the teacher was either getting frustrating with me, frustrated with me or the, my parents were getting annoyed. My parents pulled me off karate when I was a kid because I wasn't disciplined enough. Really? Just wrap your head around that. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, trying to, because you studied for the test. I'm trying to, I'm trying to actually piece that together because you studied for the test. You were going to get the, the belt and yet you weren't disciplined enough, but you went through everything to get the belt in the first place. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think I was probably like, to be clear, like I was probably a pain in the ass as a kid. Like, um, I, I've always been very emotional and I think that's part of what I'm going to like tie your, your, my answer to your question into is like the first martial art that I got into when I was a young adult, when I was 17, was Tai Chi and Kung Fu. And I did that completely of my own volition because I had a couple of friends at school who were like the, the wannabe fight club kids that like <laughs> hung out during lunch in one of the stairwells and like occasionally beat each other up. It wasn't really that serious, but it was just like the attitude of it, this F the world sort of attitude. Yep. And, um, and so, but for whatever reason, we all knew this one other guy who was like, in his mid twenties, who was an instructor in long fist Kung Fu and an old version of Tai Chi under his teacher. And his name was uh, Fundi John Weeks. Fundi was the title he was given because their lineage, all the titles are in Swahili under a guy uh, named Nganga Mufundishi Cholana, whose real name was Raymond Cooper. Um, anyways, the point is, is that I went there and when the teacher asked me like, well, why do you want to do this? I like gave this, you know, half ass baked kind of like, I'm a teenager. I want to be more spiritual. I didn't even know what that meant at the time. Like I was just saying it because I was like, I don't know. I wanted to feel connected to something and I wanted to have a better opportunity to have insight and control over myself and those emotions and everything that I was talking about. So I started with a very traditional system and, you know, we wore uniforms and we said, yes, sir. And we did our push-ups. And again, it was in somebody's garage. It wasn't in a big, uh, parking lot dojo or anything like that and you know we stood there and we held meditation positions for an hour like that was part of our training it wasn't we barely ever actually sparred so i learned all this really great 
physical control and motor control and movement from the Kung Fu and everything. But I also learned a lot about how self-discipline is something that I had ownership of, that I was in charge of it. Uh, the first lesson he ever gave me, he just told me, here's a move I want you to do. You're going to stand out on my back porch and do it until I come back. And he gave me one Tai Chi move. He put me on the porch when I was 17 years old. He left. And I did that move for 45 minutes until he came back over and over and wow. over again. And I was like, wow, I just made myself do that. So um, that's like the little seed of my martial arts journey is because once I figured out there was all this cool stuff I could do, I just didn't want to stop doing it. I think that's one of the craziest things. I remember when I was when I was a kid. It's it's funny that you used what you were saying about being a pain in the ass when you were a kid. My mom, I remember she put me in karate class. I went to a karate dojo. We lived in the Bronx at the time. And I remember they had us like sparring and I was just starting out. I remember this kid dropped me on my head and I and I probably got hurt. I probably got hurt. I don't even remember. All I know is that it just it just didn't work. And then she pulled me out of there, put me in another karate school and you know, I picked up a lot of stuff, but it wasn't until I got older, much like much like what you were saying that, you know, you you bump into like the kid that does capoeira, the kid that does Muay Thai, the kid that mm -hmm. does this. And then you just kind of want to mess around and do that stuff. And that's what ended up happening. So it's interesting because my mom put me in that stuff for the same reason. Like, oh, you know, your your kid needs structure. He's, you know, he's a little too hyperactive. And that it did absolutely nothing <laughs> when I was a kid. So, so it, it's funny hearing that from you, especially because your journey into the martial arts, even though you started so young, didn't become a disciplined journey till you were much older. And even still, when we're 16, 17, we're still kind of undisciplined, but to find that discipline on your own is, is very, very incredible, man. Much respect for you. Well, thank you. And I mean, it's like, this would be a whole other podcast, so I'm not going to get into it now. But like, as a teenager, I had my own issues. I mean, I had my own mental health issues. I was a child of a divorced family. I was very much bullied. I didn't get along with people in high school. And it wasn't until I really got with that group of like really weird people that just wanted to like act out martial arts movies all the time that I really felt like I was kind of jamming with people in some way. Like I wasn't into the same music as everybody else. I wasn't mm -hmm. into uh, whatever the thing at the time was that everybody was into. I, I was partially in theater. I didn't survive very long in there because of, again, kind of these emotional issues. But I, I just really realized that there was something to getting in a fight with another person, but not in a mean way that could be done and be social. And, um, you know, that was just a big part of how I made friends for that last year of high school. And then when I went to college, it kind of took a back seat a little bit, but it was always kind of there. Um, and eventually I did get more into arts and theater again and filmmaking and everything. But there was always this undercurrent that, man, I really want to want to like do this physical play fighting thing at the very least with people. Like I want to swing swords. I want to kickbox or, you know, eventually when I found like Filipino martial arts, I want to swing sticks at each other. I just... Yep. I don't know. There was something about being social and physical. Also, I was just never into sports. I never really could play basketball. I was terrible at it. I, you know, I, I, I liked baseball, but I eventually just kind of didn't want to do it. I didn't want team sports were weird. Individual mm -hmm. single people things were kind of where I was more at. So it just kind of kept staying. There as like a consistent theme throughout my adult life. And now here I am doing it professionally. It's funny because we are, we are, my friend, we are on the same wavelength because that was pretty much my entire life growing up. Didn't, didn't have team sports, didn't like team sports. 
um, mm-hmm. always gravitated towards singular things for that exact reason. I think that part of the reason why that is sometimes is because it, I, I feel that when you internalize what you're into, it just helps you become more proficient at it. Like what you were saying about you were out there practicing Tai Chi and doing the same move for 45 minutes. At that moment, you're you're internalizing it and you're probably looking at it like I have to master this one move. It's almost you against yourself, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, it is. It's it's like that quote from the movie Fearless, or at least the tagline. It's like, if you master yourself, you'll be fearless. If you master others, you're strong or whatever. Um, I, I kind of, even though I've been in leadership positions, I've always known, like, my own worst enemy is me. Like, uh, it doesn't matter what anybody else says about me. If I can't put myself on that porch and do the same move for 45 minutes, I'm going to have a problem. Um, and I'm still not like the master of self-discipline here, but as somebody that has an entrepreneurial career and has been completely freelance, the fact that I've never gone completely broke or the fact that, you know, I was able to move up to New York and get my own apartment and everything was kind of like, you know, it's not a sad story, but it wasn't, it wasn't easy for me to have the confidence to do these things. And I really do attribute my martial arts journey to being a huge part of that. And then the extension of the martial arts journey, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, but like, is the stunt stuff because to me it was like another expression of that discipline it's it really does come down to also just like you were saying like what do you feel that you gravitate towards and pay attention to mm-hmm. what captures your interest because i think for at least for me and i think it's funny you and i both agree that like team sports weren't our thing well what's one of the things that happens in team sports you sit back and you wait yep like baseball, I was terrible. If they put me in the outfield, I was digging up dirt. Like I just wasn't paying attention to the rest of the game. But if, like, if you're in the ring with somebody, you're paying attention the whole time. And it's not like I've done like a ton of ring fighting, but everything I train for is like staying aware, staying present, you know, staying on top of yourself. And maybe there are people in the sports balls, in the team games that do that. I just know it didn't work for me, man. Well, those guys are outliers. And it's funny you say that because if you look at, like Michael Jordan or these guys at the end of the day, they were so singularly focused on being the best that they made everybody around them better, but it was always them against everybody else. You know, like the recent Michael Jordan documentary really focused on that. Everybody else was kind of just playing with Jordan. You know, they were, he wasn't, (laughs) he he wasn't playing with them. They were playing with him and it was just him against everybody else to, to prove he was the best, best athlete. And I think that when it comes to, to martial arts, you know, um, George St. Pierre always talked about it. He was like, listen, I'm a, I'm a fighter, but I'm a martial artist first. I always want to prove that I'm a better martial artist than my opponent. You can be a better fighter any day of the week, but a better martial artist, a complete fighter is just not something that everyone is. So it's it's funny that you say that because it's true. There, there's outliers for that. And I actually want to talk into, I want to dig a little deeper into how you started bridging all of this martial arts experience to turn it into a profession. Like where did, where did that, where did that fork in the road come where you said, listen, I want to make this my full-time job. I mean, that's, that's a really great question because it, it requires, you know, to go briefly through it, but it requires me to kind of like express kind of like the outline of like the tripping that kind of happened to get there, like how I just kind of fell back into it. So <laughs> okay. I, I actually had, well, yeah, yeah. There's the, there's the stunt joke right there too. Um, <laughs> um, 
I had a, a consultation call with a potential client today, and I think she's going to be signing up and helping start a training group with my business, the Saga Action Arts, which is you know a big part of what I'll be talking about here with you tonight and everything, just because it's like the main thing that I've kind of like locked myself into with my brand and my endeavor. But um, she was asking, like, how did you get into stunts? And part of what I expressed was like, well, I started by thinking I was going to be an actor. Ah, okay. And yeah, and I mean, I do have acting experience. I do have acting credits. I am in SAG-AFTRA, the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television Radio, whatever, whatever's um, yep. AFTRA. And um, no, no one in SAG knows what AFTRA means. And it's, it's, but we all still call it SAG-AFTRA now because we're supposed to hyphenate it. Um, I, and I, I've done performance. I've been in theater and everything like that without being a stunt performer. But the truth of the matter is, is that it goes back to those emotions and that self-discipline. When I was an actor, I could give some pretty good performances, but my attitude was at its Really? Um, How so? I was just all, I was all about me. <laughs> and it, it, it wasn't something that I enjoyed. Like, look, I'm on this podcast and I'm talking at you right now, but it's like, all I care about by doing this podcast is like, if something I say ends up being interesting or meaningful to somebody and it, it, it triggers them, it gets them excited, it triggers them in a good way. Let me be clear about that. I don't want to trigger anybody in a bad way. Please like, hopefully in the mental health stuff, CW, et cetera, et cetera. But like, uh, I, I want to spread the positivity of like whatever this life thing is kind of about, you mm -hmm. know, how we can be our best and help others be their best. Um, right. Like, you know, there's this very tagline sort of thing, the saga that's like, be your own hero. And when I was an actor, um, I was just trying to be like in the spotlight, in the center of attention. And I wasn't really thinking about, how important the people around me were. So what happened was I got really lucky because one of my first, my first professional acting job was with Six Flags America. It was a stunt show. Um, so I was being a stunt performer, but I was also acting. And again, I had my own little issues and everything like that. And I had to learn to get along with the cast and theater can be really hard because you're around the same people, the same five or six people for like six or seven months for a show like that. And if you're not like Captain Social and it's weird for you, it's like that can be really tricky. So you get really interested in the job and you get really interested in like, well, how can I be the best that I can be at this? And, uh, you know, I got through that job and I went back into the, the local film industry in the D.C. area and I auditioned and I acted and I got some lead roles in some indie films that didn't pay me anything and pretty much cost me money to drive around the whole area. And. You know, it was just like, this is fine and all, but I don't feel like I'm pushing myself the way that I want to be. I don't, you know, I feel like I need to shut up more and just <laughs> think and focus and work more. And I was doing martial arts at the same time. And I was like, man, I really just want to change my branding to be like, I'm just going to be a stunt guy. So people would offer me acting roles and I'd be like, sure, I'll, I'll, uh, you, you pretty much got to pay me to act, but I'll do stunts for free for right now while I'm building this career. You know, because I've worked on a couple of TV shows like Nightmare Next Door, all those like uh, murder, death, porn, recreation things. Yep. That, um, what was it? Informative murder porn? Yeah, where they where they recreate. They always recreate the crime and yeah. they do. They have the people yeah. reenact yeah. the entire thing. Silver Spring, Maryland is the hot spot where it was for making the recreation. Really? Uh, there was a company there. Yeah, there was a company there, Sirens Media out of Silver Spring. It was actually um, female owned and operated. 
uh, you know, which was a big deal to them. Um, but it was all these scenes of like, and he looked at her and thought, I'll kill her. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, did he do it? Let's find out after the commercial break. Right. You know, I, I played everything from like a creepy stalker boyfriend to like, uh, a peeping Tom window wanker. You know, I, I, I played a lot of weird roles. I, I'm pretty sure I played a white supremacist. I had cotton balls in his mouth at some point. It was oh, jeez. Um, but yeah, my whole point is, is like, once I started realizing that stunts was also about taking care of other people, it was about being as strong as you can be so that you can help take care of those other people. And yes, it's going to affect the work that you're going to do, but it was much more like kind of like a semi-military sort of thing. And it's not at all like the actual military, but like the mentality of everybody that's around you is your responsibility. And in order to be responsible you have to be disciplined and you have to take control of yourself and you can't have freakouts and you've got to be engaged and present and aware and safety oriented in terms of your environment. I was just, I was really thrilled and enamored by that because it was like, I felt like I could really help. Like I could be on set and I could do something useful. And at the same time, my job when I wasn't on set was to train and just get better at that part of it. And so I couldn't really do rock climbing or rigging or like wire work, I focused on my martial arts. I doubled down. I was at the point where I was taking four different martial arts classes every week for a couple of years. I was taking ninjutsu, kizzy fighting method, kempo karate, and a sport karate that I was also learning to teach for kids. And, you know, I was still doing my own kung fu at the time. I think our school was closed at that point. And I was just, I was just blowing my mind by taking in everything I could. Um, And I sucked for the first couple of years. Because I was just doing so many different types of martial arts. I wasn't just settling on one. But I was like, man, I want to get these different perspectives. And I want to know how I can integrate them all and put them all together so that I can make it useful for what I want to do with my life. And I didn't even know what that was at the time. I just knew that I had to do it. Well, now, with with trying to trying to figure that out, especially with, with you training in so many different martial arts, at what point did you decide on one particular martial art to hone in on what, what was that? What was that wake up call for you? when you said, you know what? I need to focus on this one because this one's going to be my bread and butter. Well, I didn't, it never happened. Really? Um, It it would for a time. Okay. Like, like for a while I'd be like, okay, I'm going to focus on mostly Filipino martial arts right now. So, you know, I was in, uh, I was already in stunts. I was already professional. Um, and my first mentor, uh, Chuck Jeffries, uh, who's the choreographer for the first Blade movie and the first Spider-Man movie. He was my first like hardcore stunt mentor. Um, it was a professional relationship that lasted for about a year and a half, give or take. Uh, and he brought me to work on a movie called Black Mass. It was a Johnny Depp movie up in Boston. And I was doubling Jesse Plemons um, from Breaking Bad. Nice. And uh, Meth Damon. Uh, he said that I looked exactly like him. And I was like, that's a compliment, right? Um, and uh, and uh, I didn't have to really do anything on camera because Jesse did all of his own fights because he was fantastic. But I had to be there for four hardcore weeks of fight choreography training with Chuck and the stunt team. And I was really green. This was only my second professional stunt uh, job. I mean, I had worked multiple episodes on Turn Washington Spies, but this was only the second coordinator I'd ever professionally worked with as a sag after performer. And I was in the deep end of like a $30 million Warner Brothers wow. in a town I'd never been to. I'd never been to Boston. So I was, was like, trial by what fire. What is going on here? Yeah. Wow. Um, 
So my point is, though, is that, you know, when I was training with Chuck, we were doing boxing for the most part because that's what it called for with the character. But when we when we met afterwards back in Maryland to train at a park in Columbia, of all places, uh, he started showing me Filipino stick fighting with uh, the Inasano Lacosta Sombrata, which I barely even knew what he was talking about at the time. And basically these flow drills, you tap the stick, you tap the stick, you tap the stick, you go to all these different angles. And at the time, my brain was just like it was on fire. It was melting. It was like <laughs> the Terminator going into the, the freaking hot lead works at the end of the second movie. It was just like, oh, man. you know, I was I was done. I was like, how do I even keep up with this? And then eventually I found a school in Maryland, uh, Maryland Jeet Kune Do, uh, with uh, Sifu J.B. Yeager, who I'm still friends with. And we still train together and work together every once in a while. Um, and uh he taught me how to actually do it. He taught me the double stick stuff and the movie, uh, not, not the movie, the show arrow came out and, uh, I, I ignored it. I slept on arrow for two seasons. And then finally it was on Netflix. And I was like, I guess I'll give it a shot. 15 hours later, I'm like halfway <laughs> through the first season. I'm like, Oh my God, I want to be this guy. Yep. Like, Oh my God. Like Stephen Amell is so freaking awesome. And he is. Um, so I focused on the stick fighting and, you know, I focused on the blade work and everything from Filipino martial arts. And then eventually JB was like, uh, hey, I've got my Jeet Kune Do classes on top of that. And I was like, eh, I don't know. I mean, Bruce Lee's cool and all, but he's like the guy everybody likes. And I'm really kind of more punk rock. Like, I don't like going with what everybody else likes. But, right. And he was like, yeah, but, you know, uh, do this kick. Oh, yeah. OK, cool. Yeah, that's a Savat kick. What? <laughs> Bruce Lee did Savat? Well, sort of. Oh, well, I'll come to class then. That's it. Um, that's how they got you, huh? Yeah, because I always had an affinity for the French kickboxing art of Savat, um, Savat Box Francais. And I have no idea why. I, I just, I saw these French people doing these dancey, floaty sort of kicks. And I was like, that's freaking cool. I really like that. But there were no teachers for it. There was never anybody around that could teach me it. So I tried to learn what I could, but YouTube still wasn't really a thing at the time. And I wasn't on the martial arts DVD scene like Aubrey was. She's got a collection of like 200 martial arts DVDs. Jeez. Um, Training ones, not movies, like training these. And uh, I, I, uh, I was just like, okay, cool. And now I'm like working with the United States Savat Federation, like six years later, as one of their admin assistants. And I'm a white glove, which is the you know second to last or third to last rank in the system. And I had to travel to Chicago multiple times just to be able to test because there was nowhere else to go. Wow. Uh, so long, 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 as always, story short, uh, it's always martial arts is like a, if you, if you are like a lifelong martial artist, you might not find like the style that you're in love with, but if you do, it's going to be very apparent to you. It's going to like, just click with you. And I loved Savat before I even knew what it was. Like I just had this thing for it and I like Filipino martial arts a lot, but I like what they do to my brain. I like how I feel when I train in them and I like what I'm able to create with other people when I do them. Uh, I don't really go around town as much as I do carry like trainers around with me. I don't like go around like stick fighting people on the regular or anything right. like that, but I really like doing the drills with people and I have done actual stick fights. Um, it's, I would say like those two arts, are like a very big part of the core of what I do. And they're a huge influence on what saga action arts has become. So that's kind of where it came to a head. It was like, wow, these are the ones that I will pay. This, this is what it comes down to. I will pay thousands of dollars to travel the world and train in these two arts. I mean, you, you know, it's funny because when, 
we first connected, I was like, wow, he know, you know, I saw that you knew Savat. The only, the only thing I knew about it, and, and this is just because I was a comic book fan, is there was a villain. His name was Batrock the Leaper, and his fighting style yeah. was Savat. And then when they used him in uh, Captain America, GSP played him, which was pretty insane. Just like you were talking about, right? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what the hell? I'm like, that's pretty cool. And, you know, I, I didn't think it was going to translate well because his con- his con- the character's comic book costume is... You know, it's just it's very hokey, very gimmicky. But they did a good job. Well, like he's bringing... one of like those goofy like seventies characters. Yeah. Right? So yeah, he had like a yellow unitard, and he had like a really curly mustache, like Dick Dastardly. <laughs> it was crazy, but that was his fighting style. So like to see that brought that was my exposure to even knowing about that discipline. Like I was like I didn't know about that, and I remember I learned about uh, Kali stick fighting. I remember I watched. Um, the the movie the perfect weapon with jeff speakman yeah yeah, and and he did the stick fighting i was like oh that's pretty cool and then you know just as a kid you start reading and finding stuff out as you grow up and i was like oh that's kind of awesome so it's funny as you're you're breaking down so many of these like my exposure to them was just tied into just me like we were saying nerding out about other stuff like i knew nothing about uh the french even having a kickboxing style until i was reading comics and i learned that so it's pretty cool that you you're so proficient in it that you're pretty much almost a second. You said you were second to last, right? To the last, to, to being a master uh, in the so art. So white, yellow, silver are the last three ranks. So, uh, in the, in the like year and a half to two years, I've trained with the United States Savat Federation. I've gone from the first glove to like the fourth way faster than you're probably supposed to, but that's just because <laughs> it's like what I practice all the time on my own. Like, right. Uh, everybody else is like a, it's like a supplemental thing to their other style. Like they just they do Sabat because well it's another thing I can get ranked in. But for me it's like no no no. Eventually I want to be like president of the United States Sabat Federation and help make it a big thing because the thing about the organization that I'm in is that it's the official United States one that reps anybody in the United States that wants to go and compete internationally uh, with the French International Sabat Federation because in France it's the national sport. And they do treat it like an actual, like, like boxing. Like it is almost as big as boxing in France. It's not as big anywhere else, but it is pretty big in some other countries. It just never took off in America because American machismo did not like the, uh, the leotards. <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's, it's, I guarantee that's the reason. You, you know, you're probably a hundred percent right. But you know, what's funny about when you look at other disciplines, especially with the rise of, of MMA over the years, and, and all the and and the way other arts have been absorbed, and you see some fighters that they that they train in in you know stick fighting and all these other ones as just an uh, an ancillary benefit to their full toolkit. So right. to, to hear you talk about it, I mean, at the end of the day, if that's if that's the reasoning behind the, a martial art not being embraced in this country, it's it's pretty one dimensional. You know, like that nobody if, if it's because you have to wear a leotard. I mean, listen, you know, when we were growing up, they used to always joke about making football players do ballet to help them be more graceful. <laughs> it's the it's the come on. <laughs> I mean. I, I could talk for like hours about that one art, but it's just uh, it, it was in the same schools as ballet. It's very French. It's pretty. Um, we are more into Muay Thai in America. We're more into we were into hard contact karate, like Benny the Jet style. Yep. Like we, you know, we were all about just kicking the crap out of each other. And the version of Savat that I like the most is called Assault or Asso is how they pronounce it. And it's basically a game of tag. 
Like it's it's a point sparring, it's continuous, but you're not really supposed to knock the other person out. It goes back to what I was saying about being in high school. It's like it's cooperative. And it's not like jujitsu where you might get choked out or something like that, which is fine if that's what you're into. And, you know, I've done my own share of it, but it's like, I just feel like I'm flying when I do it. And, you know, it's like that Batrock the Leaper guy. It's like, woo, I'm jumping around. Like, you know, uh, so, and I mean, just to put like a point on it, you go on Wikipedia and you look up Nightwing and they say like his two fighting styles are Kali and Savat. That's right. It's like, man, I wish I could move like that. You know, I wish I could like do a backflip into a big 360 kick and then double stick swing. And it's all that inspiration and it all kind of comes back together. That's why I started the company that I started because I would watch these cartoon characters. I would see these video game characters. I'd see these comic book characters and I'd be really empowered by them. And I'd be like, well, I can't do that. It's, it's the real world. So you can't do that. And I was like, that's not true. I can do that. I just have to like contextualize it. I have to find a way to make it a thing that I can do. And what, what you'll know is that if you look up our background, mine and the DC stunt coalitions, we've done like, 15 or so stage combat shows at conventions like Otacon and uh, AwesomeCon and MAGFest. We've done all these cosplay character fight shows and the audiences loved it and they've all been really inspired. We'd have, we'd have rooms of 100 people throwing fake punches at each other and acting out and being friendly and having a blast at a convention where you usually sit in a chair and watch three people on a stage talk to each other. 100%. I mean, I I covered a con years ago, and they did a uh, Star Wars lightsaber demonstration. And I'm like, all right, you know, it's like in the movies. But what I didn't know was, like, there was an entire system of choreography that went into it. And it's almost Mm -hmm. like that style, like like that particular discipline was its own martial art because there there was you know fencing principles in there and different sword fighting principles and i was just like all right and when i when i watched the performers do that and then they spoke afterwards i was blown away i was like all right and i guess it's not just hey let me buy this lightsaber and do some cool stuff there was actual real world applications in there which goes back to what you said about you see some of these characters perform it in video games and movies and stuff like that and it's not a matter of I can't do it. It's how can I do it? Which is, which is awesome that that's your approach for this. And, and it it really is. It's like my, my goal with the company, again, it's called saga. Like the implication is that it's your story. Yep. So I want you just like you were asking me about like, how'd you settle on one martial art? No, I want you, the person that I train to find what you have an affinity for and then just dive deep and love it. And like get something out of it. And then, you know, the end goal should be, well, how do you give something back with, you know, if you want to just make it a hobby and keep it your personal thing, that's fine. At least let it bring you some mental health so that you can like do better in all the other things that you do. But if you are like a performing artist or you are a martial arts teacher, who are you going to inspire with these skills that you develop? And how are you going to help them feel like they can actually do things? Like, I know it's very after school special. It's very only the strong or something like that. <laughs> I, I get it. But um, but it's true. I mean, there's a reason why we gravitate to these stories like Rocky and Karate Kid and, um, you know, uh, not necessarily three ninjas, but sure. Why not? Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, <clears throat> it's 
where was I going with that? I was going somewhere with that. I was really going somewhere with that. <laughs> it's I'm lost. I forget what we were talking about. I just uh, I ranted and ah burned. I burned. I burned the podcast. Burn nah. it all down. <laughs> nah. nah, it's all right. I mean, you know, to to bring it full circle. I mean, bring, using using this as a way to your your disciplines to pay it forward to bring people value. It, it's actually a good segue into how you got started with Saga Action Arts. When what was the idea behind that? Like, when did you wake up and say, you know? I want to go and I want to use this to to bring people together and teach them not not just for if they want to pursue a career in in stunts, but just in terms of inspiring, like you were saying, inspiring confidence and bringing people together under an umbrella that many, many people just aren't being brought under. Right. Um, So that brings me to like two points. And I'll try and make the first one really quickly because it kind of it goes back to what you were saying about how you saw like the lightsaber thing. Right. At The convention. Mad respect for the lightsaber guys, mad respect for the Star Wars groups and everything like that. As a kid go- growing up, I could care less about Star Wars. I was never a Star Wars. Like, sure, a lightsaber was cool. I've done a couple of short Star Wars films with people. I don't dislike Star Wars. I actually, I'm a terrible apologist for uh, The Rise of Skywalker. I just had a lot of fun watching it. That's how much of a Star Wars fan I am. I loved Rise of Skywalker. That's that's my problem. But like. <laughs> um one of the things that's like to do these fictional combat scenarios, you basically have two options. Either you need to be a performing artist, like a stunt performer or a stage combat person. If you're in stunts, you're just waiting to get your big break. And if you're in stage combat, um, there's a couple of major organizations that teach eight basic weapons and you have to do everything in this one really specific way. That's not informed by martial arts. It's informed by how do we make it safe enough to get into colleges. And then if you want to do martial arts, you're either sparring or trying to fight for real, or you're trying to learn self-defense, and then you start building this chip on your shoulder where you're paranoid everywhere you go, like looking down the alley, like going to the bar, like, is this guy going to hit me? How am I going to hit him? Am I going to smash this ashtray in his face or whatever? It's like, depending on which circle you run with, you're either with a bunch of like crazy people that want to start something, or you don't actually want to compete, but you do like sharing energy with people on a physical level. It's hard to find kind of like that through line that justifies, well, why are you doing martial arts without it being one of those traditional answers? So like, for instance, with the Star Wars thing, I really liked that idea that they could kind of do it practically, kind of do it for show, kind of do it just for fun, and that they could kind of float in between those three sort of different layers of it. But the thing for me was that it's like, but why has this got to be owned by Star Wars? Like right. there's all sorts of different media out there. There's comic books, there's ninjas and video games. There's, there's anime, there's like my hero academia. There's like all this amazing content out there where people are fighting and sparring dragon ball. I mean, I'm sure you grew up with dragon ball. I grew up with dragon ball Z and everything like that. So, Absolutely. you know, these characters aside from like the major villain arcs, they're, they're just there trying to like, share an experience and learn from each other. It's not necessarily about punching each other's face in as hard as they can. It's just incidental to the show. Right. Um, So after all those experiences, the main thing, like you were saying is like, it did start with me being in stunts. It did start with me going, okay, well I need to get good at this for a career where I can make money. And I love stunts and I really am very grateful for the career that I've had. But again, at a certain point, it was just like, this just feels so much like it's it's hustling to get a job, to make money, to be 
the guy that people come to to hire to do a job to make money and then it just feels like the circle it's like well when do i start using it to give back and yeah sure entertainment is a way to give back but it felt very indirect right um and i was in the dc area i was in like what i refer to as a non-market and i had the opportunity to find a gym and to get people together through a facebook group and be like yo do you guys just want to train not all of us are going to have careers, but do you want to put stuff together? Do you want to do shows at conventions? Do you want to make short films? If I get a project with a client and I need to make a little action scene, can we put that together? And I did it. And for like eight or nine years, I ran the DC Stunt Coalition down in Rockville, Maryland, um, bouncing back and forth between my own professional gigs, but also trying to help other people get their careers started. But at least 80% of the people that came in just wanted a different way to work out and just wanted to have fun and wanted to do fake fight scenes and put them on video and show their friends or throw it on their Instagram. And I was like, this is awesome. People are engaging with this material. They're not trying to hurt each other. They're, they're channeling aggression, but it's non-aggressive. And they are getting in shape and they are training self-mastery skills just like I was doing in Kung Fu. It's just fun. So why can't I build a business out of this? Oh, because the only business out of this is to be a stunt performer. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, there's no way that's true. True. I got to find right. something else to do with it. You're and right. that's when I invented Saga. I was like, I don't want to be like another martial arts school. I don't want to train just for self-defense. I don't want to train just for competition. And, you know, I don't want to train just so that everybody bows to me sensei. I wanted to create something where people, as they started training, would learn to create for themselves and for other people. Well, with that, with that said, I think one of the, one of the things that has proven to be interesting, especially now with with covid-19 and so many people being inside and locked up there's there's a lot more create creativity and a lot more there there are a lot of creative outlets out there and the thing that's got me which i've seen and i'm sure you've seen it on different social media platforms is people doing uh the stunt fight where one person does a hit the other person reacts and then it cuts into different into different fights it's almost like one long fight scene like they've done it a lot on tiktok and and different platforms uh-huh. like that and Watching that, you, it, it it blew my mind that so many people were just into wanting to do that. And it really got me excited for our conversation because I said, you see that everybody, when we were kids, we all emulated what we saw, whether it was, you know, a fight scene from Power Rangers or, you know, something from Enter the Dragon or Five Deadly Venoms or any of these different movies, Rocky, etc. And now you're in your case, you're taking all of that and you're packaging it in a way where people can grow from it and be just just better, whether it's mentally better, physically better, or even if they do want to turn it into a career, there's an outlet for that, too. Yeah. And I mean, uh, I saw a lot of the uh, I refer to them as punch it forward videos. I actually owe a group of martial artists an edit and you get done sometime this week. I got to make one of those myself. Uh, with <laughs> nice. a New York martial artist, but uh, Abra did one for Stunt Women's United Network. Uh, she was in one of those. I never pushed myself to get in on one because I was like, over the course of the pandemic, I was already making my like eight hours of content a week. I was like, I should do this, but for some reason, it just doesn't click with me. Um, but it was cool seeing what everybody else was doing. And yeah, you're right. They were just, I think in some ways, it was like just sharing the experience of this WTF feeling of like, why are we locked inside? What's going on? And yep. just it, imagining punching another person in the face across space and time probably was really cathartic. Yeah, it was it, it was crazy because I think there was a, a stage where some of the 
you know, some of the quote unquote, you know, well-known Hollywood actresses did one. And it was like Scarlett Johansson and a couple of them. And they did that. And I was like, all right, now you guys just want to get in on the fun because there were so many uh, active (laughs) stunt performers doing it. Then all of a sudden, you know, these mainstream actresses did one. And I was like, all right, that's cool. But it wasn't as cool as like the, the people that were doing some that were just really amazing. And the thing about it was one of of the original ones was like a group of, kids from like a French stage combat program or something like no one knew who any of these people were. They were just, they were one of the first people to do it and it was really creative and it got like a million views on Facebook. And I was like, who are you guys? And it was just, (laughs) they just went and did it. So you're right. The, the, the A-list stars were like, Oh man, we're being shown up. We better be entertaining. Otherwise our jobs aren't going to survive to all these random kids on YouTube and TikTok. (laughs) No. And, and you're, you're a hundred percent right. Sometimes I see, uh, certain choreographed fight scenes on YouTube, things like that, because I've always been, a, I've always been a fan of the science of a fight scene. Um, you know, especially after I, I watched, uh, the raid when the raid came out here in the States, I was just blown away with the work that they were doing. One take, you know, very close combat. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And to see people just recreating that on YouTube, just on their own was just amazing. Mm-hmm. It's, it really is amazing how these types of movies are so universal that we get insight into different cultures when we watch these movies. And my favorite thing about that is that the movies are made in the country that, you know, we're getting an, a look into like the raid, the Tony job movies in Thailand, yep. obviously like all the Kung Fu movies and like old Japanese samurai movies and everything like that you know, maybe in some ways they carry their own stereotypes, but they are at least created by the people who live in those countries and live those lives. So we get a little bit more insight into them and their culture. And I mean, a, a, a fist to the face is universal, man. Like we can all at least agree on that. Like if I punch you in the face, it doesn't matter what culture we're in. That's going to mean something. So uh, it's it's always been really cool to me to watch all these foreign martial arts films and just be able to be like, man, I wonder what Indonesia is like. And like, I actually got to go to the Philippines a couple of years ago. And like, I actually went this last year and just to see more of the world and be inspired to see where all these things come from, um, has been a huge part of the journey in that sense. Uh, and yeah, when it comes to the science of it, the reason why the raid guys are so good is because the sea lot is huge part of their culture. Yep. And it's not just, it's not just a physical combat art like it is. And it's not just a meditative martial art like Kung Fu or something. It's their performing art like Penchak and Penchak Salat more or less means like the display of, it means like the performance of, because they tell a lot of their stories through their sea lot. And it's incredible. It's, it's their art form. It's their entertainment form. They do it at birthday parties. I want to, I want to talk about, the 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 training aspect with with saga when people walk in let's say they walk in for the first class and they want to how do you how do you prepare them for what's for what's coming because a lot of people come in and i'm sure you have to um assess people's preconceived notions people automatically want to come in and you know put the cart before the horse oh i want to work with sticks and swords and this and you're like wait hold on how do you how do you approach that with with someone just coming in off the street that wants to to start working with, with you and and the saga team? So there's two approaches. There's either the group lessons or the private lessons. And this is like, uh, in the micro version of the company. Um, this is like, 
you're, you have a training group or you have an instructor and for practical purposes, let's just say that's right. Um, when we run classes at the DC stunt coalition, which are obviously now closed for the time being, but we're going to be starting them up again in parks and everything soon. You know, people come in and just jump in and keep up as best as you can. No expectations about your level of physical fitness, no expectations about how tough you are. Just if something doesn't feel safe for you, don't do it. If it feels like you're not ready to do it, we can come up with a modifier for you on the fly. Like the, the best way to be able to train people is to know modifiers. Uh, just like in cross, good CrossFit, mind you, just like in good CrossFit, if they can't, you know, do this prescription exercise, what can we give them that they might be able to do? And then for me, it goes way deeper than that. It's like, if you feel like you can't do anything, I haven't done my job. Hmm, my job okay. is to make you feel like you can do something. All right. Because anybody can do something. We just have to figure out what that is for you right now. I once had a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo coming into the DC Stunt Coalition, and he had no idea how to do a forward roll on the ground because he had always done stand-up kickboxing with Taekwondo. And he was terrified of throwing his face towards the ground and doing a little shoulder roll. And I was oh, like, man. really? And then he ended up killing it in some of our stage combat shows. And he ended up being like one of our best quote unquote stunt performers. Um, who ended up having like a good independent career. He never went pro, but like, you know, he was really great. And it, it doesn't matter what level you're at. You're going to be intimidated by something. And it's my job as a coach to help you feel comfortable or to acknowledge that this might not be for you, but what would you like to try and do? So when you have a group class on a social level, it's important to be like, hey, if you like it, keep up. And then it's also on a social level to not be like, so pressuring because if it's not for them, it's not for them. And that's okay too. Like they might have a different hobby. You know, if you want to run an organization or a school or something like that, you're going to lose as many potential students as you're going to gain, if not more. And that's okay because you want the people that want what you're, you're offering. So like on an entrepreneurship level, just never take it personally. Um, now, when it comes to the private lesson, it's really like the complete inverse. Because when I have a private client, the first thing I start with is, what are you interested in? Okay. What can I do for you? So I act as service. I go like, do you want to do kickboxing? Do you want to do weapons? Do you want to do rolling and tumbling? And then eventually, like, I show them the other parts of the curriculum because then it's like, okay, you can roll and tumble. But now that you can roll and tumble, let's put a stick in your hand and have you do a stick combo out of it so that your rolling and tumbling is just that much more cooler because now you're doing it with a weapon. Or, okay, now you're going to roll and tumble. You're going to get up and you're going to throw a boxing combo because what's the point of the rolling and tumbling? If you're not doing something cool in and out of it, and then right. people like they start connecting the dots and it becomes about this overall universal method of movement training, being able to do any action from any action. And it's that flow. So it's all about the starting point with the client. What is your initial interest? And then how do we build and bridge off of that? So you're giving them a gateway drug and then you're, you're forking that out into other aspects of the curriculum because you, you know that once they kind of, once they start, they're not going to want to stop, especially when you tie it all together. Right. Right. So, I mean, have you ever played like Diablo? Uh, yeah. The, years ago, but yes. You know, a uh, skill tree is right. Yes. And, and like an elder scrolls and everything, right? Yep. As you, as you level up and then there's different facets that you break out and then you start leveling up those specific specialties. That's how I view Saga's curriculum. Okay. The, the, the client needs to be aware of what they're going to have the opportunity to do. And then I help guide them to that point. 
But if there's like a secondary or auxiliary skill that they're interested in, I help them grow that too on the side. But if like I literally with my first spreadsheet with my clients, I was like, all right, this person's an assassin. This person's a sword fighter. This person's a gladiator. This person's a, a kickboxer. This person's a Hong Kong action star. I was like, I was trying to think about the character types that these people want to market and sell themselves as. Right. Because it's the same thing as D&D. It's just in real life. Like, what type of mover do you want to be? Absolutely. Uh, I want to be a really bizarrely flippy floppy French person, apparently. That's my that's my art. Right. But that's what I love to do. I Abra is really great at Muay Thai. If she kicks me in the leg, I'm going to fall over every single time. So she's really into the Muay Thai. She's Apachai from... Uh, history's strongest disciple Kenichi, and I just want to jump out of the way and never get hit because I'm <laughs> like not down for getting my leg shattered by the hardcore Muay Thai person. I watched that video of Anderson Silva, and I was like, nope, nope, never. It, that was nope. th- that was a very very humbling thing. There was another guy. Um, I, b- I believe his name was <laughs> Corey Taylor. He uh he was on the Ultimate Fighter, and he had a break that was like that. I think it was in his first pro fight or his second, and I was just like, oh my god! I remember I was watching it. And it's, it's a scary thing, but you know, it just goes to show something that you said before, what the human body is truly capable of when, when you apply yourself. And, and I think that's so important that you just brought that up and to put that into the context and kind of like, just make it really clear. We do want to push people, Yep. but like our clients need to be pushed at their pace or what pace they want to go for. I'm not a boot camp instructor unless someone like asks me to do that. In which case, like, I'm like, okay, this is going to be gladiator training. Let's go. And I just pull out the Spartacus handbook of yelling at people, uh, <laughs> doctore style. But, um, what it really is, is that it's, I think, especially in our culture, we look at things like these action movies and these Marvel characters and everything like that. And we go like, well, that's separate from reality. But then we get the stunt performer who's the bridge between the two. It's like, well, no, but there's a person really doing this stuff. That's right. Well, I can't be that person. I can't be that person. And it's like, like, hell, you can't. You absolutely can do at least some of this stuff and you can do it and have fun with it. So don't be afraid to play pretend with a sword. Just know that you're not walking down the street challenging people to a duel every three seconds. Like there's a way to go about it where you can integrate into your life holistically and have fun. And not have a weird delusional, like, I'm the guy with 40 swords on my wall. Well, I literally have 40 swords on my wall, so I shouldn't be saying that. But it's like, <laughs> they're trainers and they're set design. Like, you can have fun with that stuff without it being weird or off the reservation or, you know, a sign of some sort of underlying mental illness. It's just a way to express yourself and it's a way to grow as a person. Well, I also I also feel that and, and w- w- you you summed it up perfectly. I think it's one of those things where there's there's different people that you can look at that are in that are in this community, whether it's a martial arts community or in the stunt community. And there not everybody, quote unquote, looks the same. I always tell people it's like for every Jackie Chan, there was a Sam Hung, you know. Right. For every Bruce Lee, yeah. there was a Bolo Young. If you look at two different spectrums, but two accomplished performers just at, on different levels. Look, look at Nick Frost. That's right. I mean, and, look, and, look and, at and, him into the Badlands yep. season two and three and tell me he's not at least doing some of his own fight work. Damn right. And, and look at him in, in The World's End. Absolutely. Into the Badlands blew me away. He's this overweight, schlubby guy that was on like series television in in. England and he's incredible as a physical performer. Yep. 
And I and 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 hearing Anybody you say that, yep. And hearing you say that, and and package your your business, your 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 business, um, your philosophy around that is is refreshing because I think that's one of the things that so many people get scared of when they want to go into these type of things, whether it's an MMA class or or a karate class or anything in general. It's like, oh well. I don't look like everybody else. And it's like the whole purpose is not looking like everybody else and moving differently. I think that's so valuable because I think like everybody's got like, if you want to talk about physical movement culture, yeah, there's a baseline. There's something that you can start with, but man, I've again, watching arrow. I've always wanted to do pull-ups. I've always wanted to be able to do that cool parkour stuff. For some reason, my shoulders do not support me doing pull-up style movement. I've been trying, I've been training. It doesn't happen. And, you know, eventually one day I'll get a little bit better at it. But the most I've ever been able to do is like 10 really basic straight pull-ups, which is great, but I still can't do it. And I've injured my shoulders a few times, but I can still jump around and kick. I can still do my savat. You know, I can still kickbox. I can still swing sticks. I might not have that one thing that I really want, but if I really wanted that bad, I'd get it no matter what. But I still have things that I love. And I'm not being lazy because I do put the energy into the other things. Um... I've had people of all types of looks, backgrounds, skill levels come and not only train with me, but perform with me. I've had people of all experience levels, people that barely could walk like straight, like they have some sort of weird body shift thing. They got too much tension in their bodies and I've trained them. And I've had grandmasters in martial arts come and train with me to learn how to perform more, to be more of a goofball or to be able to perform to camera more everybody's got something that they can learn. That's what coaching is for. It's for helping you discover a new thing that you can do with your own body or with your mind. And, you know, I I go through that process with myself like every day, like what do I need to do to approach this differently? What do I need to do to grow in this way? And it's, it really is. It's a shame when people think that physical culture has to be ableist or body shaming oriented because it's not like yep. yes results will happen if you work out and you'll look a certain way but man i'm i'm 32 years old and i i got like chronic dad bod okay like as much as i want to look like Stephen amell it just doesn't happen because i don't have eight hours a day to be in the gym i don't have my own personal trainer i don't have my meal plan guy i'm an entrepreneur trying to build a business and it's not just doing a thousand crunches every day Nope, definitely it's not. Hard, you Wait. know, but I got to accept what I look like. And when I want to look better, then I can put more time in it. But it's like, I know I can move. I know I, I can kickbox. I know I can stick fight. I know I can perform and choreograph because I've been on stunts and TV shows. And, you know, if I can do it, I really think anybody can. Like, that's all there is to it because I have no raw talent. Like, it has all been hard work. The only raw talent that I have is that I'm a goofball. <laughs> and I'm willing to like be like over the top with my actions to the point where I have to rein them back in from time to time if I want to perform, uh, like I've done in some of my stunt performances. Is like, okay, you're being too much of a cartoon character. Be a little bit more real. Okay, boss. Yeah. And then I switch it up. And they're like, wow, the stunt guy can act. I'm like, nah, man. I just I start big and then I will it back. That's it. Because that's all I've got. Like I'm a goofy, goofy, goofy Jim Carrey-ish sort of guy in my physical performance. Uh, I- and it's that kind of confidence that I want other people to have to like not judge themselves, to not worry that everybody thinks they look like trash. Like, no, you don't. You're trying something. You're just doing something. And that's what makes it okay. You know? Yeah. If you have a boss in the stunt industry and they say that didn't look good enough, you got to learn how to self-correct. 
But that's also part of the training with this stuff is like yep. train yourself to be able to take feedback, train yourself to be able to take direction because that's just you learning how to have more control over your body. Absolutely. And what I actually wanted to ask, especially with everything that's been going on and the ability to, to have limited face-to-face interactions, you have pivoted tremendously. I mean, your, your offerings on, on social media and video and Zoom and everything else have just changed, changed your approach. But I also feel that it's allowed you to flex your muscles creatively. And I wanted to get into that. Um, just how did you how did you know that this was the right way to pivot? Like when this all happened, because I know a lot of entrepreneurs when, when things got really bad towards the end of March, beginning of April, it was a lot of scrambling for a lot of people. What, you know, how did you, how did you prepare yourself for this next chapter where you've kind of done more remote learning and remote instruction? Gosh, that's, that's really great because that touches on so many things. I think you and I would totally like jam over. I mean, first of all, I would be totally remiss if I didn't say this, like you and I connected because I saw you being, uh, you like interviewing or doing Q and A with Gary Vaynerchuk, right? Yep. Yeah. And I was just like, wow, this is the guy that's talking to him. And I looked up your business. It was, uh, I think it was like nerd culture oriented, like journalism and podcasting was what you wanted to get into or something like that. And you asked Gary about it, right? Yep. He almost, he almost killed my and- business after that interaction, strangely enough. <laughs> He what? He almost accidentally made me kill my own business after that interaction. Oh no, how'd that happen? Well, only because, you know, you go up there, you have this grandiose thing, you're proud of what you're doing, and then, you know, this guy comes along and he's like, Yeah, you know, it's all right, it's not good enough. Maybe that's why you're not doing as well as you should be, because it's not as good as it is. And I'm like, Oh, I guess that's what it is. And I remember funny that you bring that up, I walked out of there and I felt like utter trash. I was like, ah, oh, this sucks. You know, here's this guy. I followed his work and he pretty much says like, yeah, hey, what you're doing is not good enough. So I remember I walked out yeah. of that. Yeah. I walked out of there just complete <laughs> shambles, man. And, um, I remember I called my, my wife and I was like, Hey, you know, this guy said this and this and this. I'm like, maybe this isn't for me anymore. Mind you, I've been doing this stuff a long time. And mm-hmm. you know, she was like, Hey, you know, like, like, like that guy, that guy's opinion is something that he, put together in 30 minutes of speaking with you, you know? So, and you know, his, his success has an asterisk, which is a separate conversation, but what, what, what came, (laughs) which, you know, but what, what I took from it was that I said, you know what, I got to start, stop looking at this as, Hey, I'm going to get rich off of it or, or it's going to be my full-time job. If it is, it is, if it's not, it's not, it's not, if it, when it stops Mm -hmm. being fun and I stop enjoying it, that's when I pull the plug. And that's, and ever since I kind of, you know, the switch went on to approach it that way. I've been a lot happier. <laughs> well, and, and I think that's kind of like, you know, not to go completely down like a Gary V rabbit hole, but it, that is a big part of his message. Yep. Like, first of all, I'll, I'll, I'll say straight up too. It's like the dude has a company called empathy wine yep. right then and there, you know, that he kind of has a confusing idea of what empathy actually means. So right. if people like you are walking away from a conversation with him feeling wrecked, it's because I think half the time he's present with who he's talking to and half the time he's like kind of just doing the Gary Vee thing. Yeah, exactly. Is, I get that. As an entrepreneur, I get that. Yep. Uh, I had a different experience with him. I, I went to one of his shoe sales in New York just because I wanted to have a chance to meet him. And I stupidly bought a pair of shoes that I've never worn. But, <laughs> you know, I got him to sign a copy of Crushing It. And I said, Gary, I want you to just write something that anytime I need to work hard, I'm going to read it. I'm going to be like, I need to be working harder. I need to be working harder. And what he wrote was, work hard from love. And the point was, is that it was like, 
don't work hard because you have to work hard to make the thing happen. Work hard because you love it and you couldn't be doing anything else. Yep. So this all ties into exactly what you were talking about. Like when the pandemic happened, um, I'm super proud of my stunt career. I think I've done more work than I ever expected to do. Like I said, like at the beginning of this thing, I wasn't popular. Uh, my grades were okay, but I was this weird kid. I, I, I never had like a talent as a kid. I never had anything that I was like really impressed with myself about. And I had like an insane sense of impossible. Like anytime anybody would tell me I did something good, I'd be like, no, you're lying. to me. Right. Like there's no way. Um, with stunts, it was like, it didn't matter whether it was good or not. Half the time, the way the stunt culture was, the coordinator wouldn't give you a compliment. They'd just be like, okay, you earned your money today. Now go home. Yep. It's like, okay, sir. Bye. Thanks. You know, and you just, you just accept it. Well, the numbers don't lie. If you look at my IMDB, I've done more work than I ever thought I could do. Yep. 63 and credits in so stunts alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, over half of those are like professional SAG after TV shows. And over half of those are repeat hires from coordinators which means my reputation was solid. Yep. And I say was because I don't know when or if the stunt industry and the film industry is coming back. And when it does, I don't know what my place in that's going to be. But I always felt like after like my second or third stunt job, if this is it, this is it. Because I loved it, but I wasn't necessarily in love with it. I was in love with something else and I wasn't sure what that was. But I loved the martial arts and I loved working with people. I loved building communities. I loved training people. So Two years ago, I start to make some money on the side because I don't work in stunts that often. I get like a gig a month or something like that. And that's pretty good. That's pretty run of the mill. Everybody's got like a side hustle or a different day job that they got. And the stunts is the career. You just call out of that job when they call you up for a stunt job. It's like, well, okay, I'll fling pizzas today, but uh, my boss called, so I got to go do stunts. Uh, if you leave, you're fired. Eh, stunts, whatever. Yep. Like <laughs> that, that's what that kind of career is. It's, it's being a mercenary. Um, and you show up when they tell you to, well, I like that job, but I needed to do something to make money in my free time. And I'm not a computer programmer and I love video games, uh, but I'm not a streamer and I love video production, but sitting down and editing nonstop wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to be up and I wanted to be physical. So I started Saga as a coaching and physical training business. And I stuck mostly with actors because through the grapevine, they just kept coming to me. They were like, hey, my friend was doing this. I'd like to do it. Uh, Great. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Are you comfortable paying me this much money? Oh, my God. That's all you charge? Absolutely. I'm going to charge money (laughs) next time. Great. I'm going to charge more. So um, in the first year of Saga, just making it like a side hustle and everything like that, I pulled in like over $15,000 of only private clients. Wow. Yeah. And the first few clients were paying less than less than $60 an hour to train with me. So that's how many repeat clients I had. That's insane. Like I had enough repeat clients that I, I, I went 150% over my initial goal. It was like, if I can make $10,000 this year, I'll consider it a success. I'll do my best. I wow. won't kill myself over it. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. That's um, phenomenal. And I was training. What? Yeah. That's phenomenal, man. Yeah. Thank you. No, I, I never thought it could happen. And thank you for Venmo for making it easy for people to send me money and be like coaxed into giving you money. Like, how do you make something like this work? You just go like, yes, please pay me. And then I'll put it on a spreadsheet. And wow, I didn't know the number would be that big by the end of the year. Um, and I had a lot of people helping me. I had a lot of people supporting me. It was at the point where it was like, I was training two or three people a day, four or five days a week. I was having a blast. It was exhausting, but I was literally doing fight choreography nonstop with wonderful people almost every single day. And then the pandemic happened. 
And if I wasn't living with my business partner, Abra, she moved into this apartment in New York uh, to pursue stunts also after her uh, cool career start at Six Flags America herself last year. If it wasn't for her living here, I wouldn't have had somebody to train with because we were all terrified of being within six feet of people. Yep. And I realized I love doing this so much. I just have to keep doing it. And there was always a plan to do some sort of online curriculum or maybe some DVD trainings or something like that to send out to people. I mean, not DVD, but you get what I'm saying. Um, no one really makes DVDs anymore. Uh, <laughs> anyways, we were just like, screw it. The world might be ending. Let's go out in style. Let's do a broadcast show where we just teach things that we care about every day for the first 40 days. I did 40 straight days of shows. Yep. Like it was nuts. I don't know how I did it. And my roommates, uh, Abra and Brett uh, Heidenreich, Brett's my uh, producer. He does all of our video production stuff. And he also is like my assistant director. He keeps me in line. He would be so mad at me for this podcast right now because he'd be like, Dylan, you're talking too much. Shut up. Like, oh my God, sorry, Brett. I'll stop. I'll stop. Uh, he's one of the hardest working people I've ever met uh, because he's just very goal oriented and he stuck by us and he filmed almost every day. Uh, he and Abra would trade off on my show. I would trade off with him on Abra's show, but he would film the shows where Abra and I were both on camera uh, two or three times a week. We would do skill development sessions where we gave our curriculum out for free. Like we just said, screw it. Here's our curriculum. Here's what we've come up with in the last two years. Um, and it's just like, it's like I was this probably why I brought up Gary V. It was like, I know it'll be out there for everybody to use and maybe three people will use it, but those three people will find value. And those are the people that I'm going to work with. Yep. And it won't matter that it's out there because if anybody tries to steal it, they're not going to be able to do anything with it the way that I'm going to be able to do something with it anyways, because it's what I have. It's my passion and I put it out there. And now, like I said, I got off a consultation call with a stage combat student who she's just getting started. She's going to be moving to Kansas City, uh, I think Oklahoma or Missouri or I don't know. Anyways, uh, American geography. Uh, I'm a product of my generation. <laughs> um, and she might be our next training group leader because she watched our show. She was just Googling stage combat training and found our content and was like, wow, you guys are so giving and you're putting stuff out there. And I was like, well, what would this kind of thing be worth to you on like a financial value level? I'm not even stating the number first. I'm just like, and she's like, when I want something... I work, I make money, and then I pay for it. And I was like, wow. There it is. That is refreshing to hear. Yeah, and that's that's what happens when you put it out to the world like that, is that the people that will be receptive to it will come on board because they realize that what you're doing adds value. So when we had to pivot like that, yeah, there was a long-term idea that we were going to um, put stuff out there for people, but it wasn't supposed to happen until at least December of 2020. Once I didn't have a way of training people in person anymore. I was like, screw it. I have to keep giving. I have to keep giving. And we didn't charge a dime. We yep. barely, we, we didn't start a Patreon. We just asked, yo, if you want to send us some Venmo money, send us some Venmo money. This one kid from Florida sent me a hundred dollars. And I was like, dude, I don't know who you are. Let's get on messenger and like, let's get, let's get a FaceTime or a zoom going and let's talk. And now he's going to be one of our potential training group coaches and he might even come crash up here in New York once it's safe and like train with me for a straight week to get like a certification under me because he put skin in the game because he saw there was value and I want him to be able to take some back and give it back and pay it forward because that's the whole purpose of this. Yep. It's all about paying it forward. I think something that you said was great about value in the sense of, yeah, sure. A thousand people could give you a dollar, but you'd rather have 20 people give you $50. 
it, it, I mean, I'll, I'll take a thousand people giving me a dollar if they're just watching the content. Right. But yeah, like it's it costs a lot of money to do this stuff because martial arts is kind of a money racket in some ways. And it is in some ways its own multi-level marketing sort of thing. Like you train people to give them a certification so that they can train people to give them a certification. But it's like it's like the empowering multi-level marketing thing. It's like actually I was talking about that with Brian Stoops because he's also like one of my business advisors. You know, dude's got a doctorate in education. He's made thousands of dollars teaching martial arts schools out of his garage. He's like, and that's all on the side of being an administrator for public education. Like he's, he's legitimately really good at this stuff. And he studied all the same marketing stuff that I have in a sense. And, you know, I was talking with him about the other day and I was like, it's more tangible than like, uh, than like a life insurance, multi-level marketing. It's more tangible than, uh, what's that? one where you sell like the magazine with the stuff and the people buy the thing. I don't remember what. Oh yeah. I know. I know what you're talking about. I think, I think that what you're, what you're, what you're looking at and, and, and I can, I can kind of summarize it is you're looking at it from the perspective of that. You're giving people something of value that can be imparted to more people to give them more value. Right. Right. And that, that was just the thing. It was like, I knew, I knew there was probably going to be, a ceiling to where I'd get as a stunt performer, because to be honest, it's, it's either you're one of the most talented BMX riders in the world and they hire you for every BMX job, or you're one of the most, the most talented martial artists that can do a bunch of backflips. I can't do a backflip or your dad was a stunt guy or your Mm. brother's a stunt guy. I see. And that's it. That's the the only way you make like a hundred thousand dollars a year off of it. So I was like, there's going to be a ceiling to this and it's not about the money, but it's about like, well, what more am I ever going to be able to do with it? So while I was training in all these martial arts to get good at martial arts for the sake of my stunt career, I was like, I really like doing this and learning from other people. I bet that I could help other people learn from me and then also help them learn from other people because my training will prepare them to go train with others. Yep. Talk about paying it forward. That's a that's textbook example of that right there. I, I, I'd rather die knowing I made very little money, but like influenced a couple dozen lives maybe than like have a ton of money and never made those connections. Like I'm not saying that you can't live the other way and be happy. Like if, if your goal is to make money, that's awesome. Like, you know, I hope you do something with it for other people, but if, if that is what fulfills you, that's great. But for me, it's just like, I, I, I have to see value in my own life. And to do that, I got to share whatever I can with other people. And I'm, I'm as flawed as anybody else maybe even a little bit more so in some ways. But the the through line has been since young adulthood into my early 30s, I always end up coming back to this. I always end up coming back to the martial arts and the physical training and building communities and being creative and telling stories and being about heroes. And that's what this is about. It's like it's a home base for anybody, and I might be projecting, but for anybody that just really wants to take these kind of indulgent power fantasy ideas, but actually do them in a practical way that makes them feel genuinely empowered. I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a way to bring it, to bring it home. I think, I think that this approach and how you're, and how you're doing it and the fact that you're being of service and bringing value is admirable, especially because like you said, there's, there's so many ways that people can get into this business that, are quote unquote the right way, but there's also ways that people can get into this business and it's the wrong way. And I think that by you gift wrapping it, so to speak as a lifestyle, 
and then letting them take those skills and apply them as they wish is just the, I think, I think it's the, it's not only admirable, but it's the right way. Yeah. And I mean, building this business was just as much a response to trauma as anything else, because I did try and get really high up in somebody else's martial art organization. And I'm not going to say who, but basically I ended up giving a lot of money to one guy who was toxic and abusive and exploitative and nothing like really terribly horrible happened to me on an actual physical level, but I saw things happen to other people and I saw how his entire business was based around self-interest and he didn't actually see any of the people in his organization for who they were. He just saw them as little mini hymns that he could just raise to be like his boys or his girls to like do his thing and build his Cobra Kai. And it was like, bro, this stuff's outdated. What is wrong with you? Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is that there are still certain sects of martial arts culture that in this country still try and play that like Sifu guru sort of like, I'm going to be your life leader sort of thing. That's why it's like, I'm never, I'm never going to professionally go by Sifu or guru. And it's not because I don't value those things. I just, it's, it's not for me, man. I'm going to go by coach because it's like, how do I help you be the best you? It's not about how do I make you into me. It's how do I help you be the best you? And that's, that's where I think this is all capable of going. And, you know, yes, emulate other people that excite you, but it's because they excite you. Don't try and turn yourself into somebody else. Don't disassociate, be your best self. And that doesn't mean you have to have washboard abs. That doesn't mean you have to be able to do a million pull-ups. That just means you have to do something where at the end of the day you go like, yeah, okay. I did something that was cool. And you go to bed happy. That's it. And that's the end of it. That's it. <laughs> I th- yeah, I think, I think that's a, a great way to, to bring it, to bring it full circle. I did want to close out with um, one thing. And I think that, but before we get into the next part of the interview, I think it's something that's very, very important. And that's the fact that you're never, you're never letting circumstances dictate your next move. Like right now, the, you know, the pandemic happened and yeah, you could have sat there and said, oh man, my business isn't, isn't going to, it's going to tank. I'm not going to make any money, but you adapted. And I think that that's the biggest part of our entire conversation is that instead of letting the adversity weigh you down in all these different facets of your life, you adapted around them and you ended up using that, uh, that adaptation to move forward and create these other amazing and new opportunities, which I think is one of the biggest things I've taken from our conversation thus far is that, you know, adaptation is key, especially when you're doing it in a way that, like you said, you're not expecting anything in return. You're doing it for the right reasons. Nah, man. Thank you for saying that. Like I haven't, I haven't really ever heard it exactly that way before. Like people have told me that I'm like, I'm good at hustling and stuff like that. But I think what you're saying is, it's like, it's incredibly hard to just flat out, stop me out cold when it comes to this stuff. Nope. Definitely um, not. And it, it's like you were saying, it's like Gary basically shot you in the heart. Absolutely. And you got up and you kept doing it. And here yep. we are like two years later, finally like talking, you know, and it's like, it's because you kept going for it no matter what. Like, I'm sure you've had to have your own pivots. I'm sure you've had to have your own change of plans, but man, if the mission stays the same, you'll accomplish anything. Yeah. I mean, to, to your and, point, you know, COVID, COVID took my, my job of 19 years. Like here I am, I'm unemployed. You know, I've been unemployed since, uh, since May 1st, 
you know, and every day you wake up and you're like, all right, what am I going to try to do in this and that, you know, and you're applying for jobs and everything else, but New York city shut down and you know, you just, you, mm-hmm. you just adapt and you pivot as best as you can and see where the road takes you. Yeah. And I mean that, that all came from like, I think it just all goes back to being like, man, I was in high school and I didn't know what to do with my time because I didn't fit in with everybody else's thing, but I still had to occupy myself in some way. Yep. So eventually it became martial arts. And then it was like, when it came to the film industry, it was like, well, I'm in Maryland and I don't have any money. What can I do? I guess I can just work on all these Craigslist films until I find something great. That's all it. right. Well, I want to do stunts, but I don't have a connection. Well, I guess I'll just build my own stunt organization until somebody notices me. And then they noticed you. Well, you you flunked out your <laughs> stunt career on your second gig because you were really green. What are you going to do? I'm going to take all the money I just made with my stunt career and I'm going to go around the world training. Holy crap. Going yep. around the world training is a lot of fun. Maybe I should figure out why this is fun and then try and share it with other people. There you go. And then, okay, there you go. And then, boom, world shut down. There's no way to go around training with other people now. I had like five martial arts trips planned this year alone. Oof. To Oregon, to California, to Florida, that I was going to go with Dr. Brian Stoops. And those all got shut down. Yep. So it's like, great. I guess I just got to bring it to everybody else. And that's what I'm going to be doing now. We've got our little studio in the basement. If somebody wants to come over, spray themselves with some disinfectant and get on Facebook Live or Zoom or something, I'll record you. I'll put you out there. I'll give you the tech support with my media production background, and we'll share with people because nothing can hold you back if you're passionate. You'll find at least the bare minimum to do that satisfies you. And if you feel like you need to take it further, you're going to go further because it it just gives to you to the point where you're overflowing and you start giving it back. Now, with regards to that, and, and you know, you were talking about your production background, all these videos that you're doing, you're filming this all with regular run-of-the-mill store-bought equipment, you know, the mirrorless cameras, uh, you know, consumer-grade uh, consumer, consumer grade gimbals and your phone and everything else, right? The nearly 100 hours of content that we've put on YouTube in the last three or four months is made with the phone that I'm talking to you through. That's, that's impressive. It's a Samsung Galaxy S10. Um, I got it because it's a little bit smaller than the really big one, and I wanted to be able to like pull it out of my pocket while I was on set without being too cumbersome uh, because you got to check your phone while you're on set. And uh, I've never been an iPhone guy, so I just I, I never got one. I got a Droid. And I'm, I'm so impressed by the technology. On Facebook Live, I can broadcast 720p live streaming with a little bit of a delay, and then once you're done filming it, the video comes back to your phone at 720p. It's not the highest quality ever, but it works. Yep. And if you get a couple of lights, it looks great. And if you clean up your set and you do a little bit of set design and you get a couple of sound blankets, the audio's fine. You get one of these tiny little microphones from B&H for like $40. Boom. You've got a studio in your house. And yep. no one, no one is going to judge you for the quality of it as long as across the board, it doesn't suck. So make sure your audio is not peaking like crazy all the time. So find a way to get stabilized. Make sure your video isn't constantly freaking out with exposure issues or focus issues. And just keep it consistent and keep getting better at it as you go. Our set and our structure, it took 10 episodes before we knew what we were doing to a science. And then once we had it down, we just we still kept improving it. But we were like, okay, get up, put it together, go, film, go, film, go. Anybody can make a TV show. Anybody can do Wayne's World in their basement now <laughs> with the right. technology we have. And if you've got a story to tell or if you've got a skill to give out there, 
spend an hour a week sharing it with other people because you know what? It's fun. It just is. And there's no reason not to. And, you know, if you don't want to do it, that's fine too. But man, the accessibility of the technology, I still haven't even tapped into Zoom. I know everybody else has, but I just don't, I'm not as big of a fan of the camera quality because I know what the streaming requires in order it, it has to chug down the, the bit rate quality a little bit more than like just single camera Facebook live. But man, watching Brian Stoops do this virtual FMA trainer thing this weekend and seeing 14 people test in five hours of three levels of curriculum all together on the same screen is, is fantastic. And he got to look super good when he came in on Saturday because we got to zoom him on his laptop and with a second backup angle with my camera on a high tripod so that everybody had like a big full body studio shot in a well-lit room with solid audio and acoustics. And you had a, you had a great five hour training session and it cost like less than three grand. I'm sure it cost a bunch less than three grand. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's so many things like, I, I, it's funny you mentioned that I actually learned this week about a way that you can actually stream from your desktop to, uh, to Instagram live now. Oh my gosh. Yep. I have to figure that out at some point. <laughs> uh, I, I'll send you the, I'll send you the details after, after we wrap, but, um, yeah, yeah that'll, that'll cool give you something there's, to there's do. So many opportunities to go into different platforms and do this stuff. I just stick with Facebook because of the functionality, but start with one platform. Yep. Like start with one and learn how to cultivate that. And then if you feel like bridging into another one, bridge into another one. I, I don't get, agree necessarily again with Gary V. It's like, oh, you have to learn all eight platforms. That's if you're trying to make like a couple hundred thousand dollar a year business selling peanut butter or whatever it is that he's talking about. If you have a small business, stick with one platform to start with, get pretty good at it and build a loyal fan base there Yep. because that's going to help empower you to do it on the next platform rather than spreading yourself too thin from the get go. There you go. Well, the, the second part of our interview, we like to call it the hot seat. It's just a series of rapid fire questions uh, discussing different things. So we're going to jump around and have a couple of different ones that we're going to go into. Some stuff will be based on your interests. Some stuff will be based on your work. All right, cool. I'll try and keep these answers to sync. Yeah. So, um, obviously when you turn on your Samsung S 10 in the morning, uh, what are three mobile apps you can't live without? Uh, sadly the Facebook app. And I say sadly, but (laughs) there's a way to stay communicated with people. Um, certainly in the last three months, it's been really important to kind of like, just see what the zeitgeist of the time kind of is. So, you know, it's been a huge part of, my communication with people and I do like building the business. Um, YouTube, YouTube, because I, I've got Google play. Uh, I've got like Google, whatever premium. I, I bought the Google music app, which is basically Google's version of Spotify. Right. I bought that like three years ago and for $10 a month, you get unlimited downloads. And at the time they were also giving you free YouTube, what was called red at the time. Now I think it's just YouTube premium and you get, unlimited YouTube. You can download to your phone if you're not on Wi-Fi and you want to watch it later without eating up data. Oh, that's cool. I just keep it as like, it's like my bookshelf. Like I've got, I've got an audio book version of Miyamoto Musashi's book of five rings on my phone for free through YouTube that I can just pick up and listen to whenever for $10 a month. So I've watched like for instance, 300 hours of Gary V's content the first year that I discovered him because <laughs> yep. I had unlimited access to YouTube. And the best thing about the free app is that you can turn your screen off and just use it as an audio device. Like it, I, I know people that 
I, I haven't listened to an ad on YouTube in like two years unless I log into somebody else's account. I'm like, why are you not paying for this? Jeez. This is the most irritating thing ever. Just pay them the $10 a month for the love of God. <laughs> nice. And then the third app, it would really just be primarily those two because I go back and forth from motivational videos and meditation videos gotcha. and business videos and learning and everything and Facebook. But, uh, you know, um, obviously I need whatever camera. I really like InShot. I like InShot a lot uh, for my video editing platform. I've been trying to find like a good video editing tool uh, for the Droid uh, phone. Obviously, if you've got an iPhone, there's something really good. The video editing apps that Samsung or Google have are like, eh. uh, PowerDirector was good for a while. But yeah, I liked PowerDirector. Formatting for different social media platforms, in my opinion. It might be better since. InShot just is, is fun to use. I just really like how versatile it is and how it formats stuff for Instagram or for YouTube or for Facebook really easily. Nice. I like, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Adobe Premiere Rush has gotten a little bit better. I wanted to try that out. I didn't see how it, I couldn't figure out how it worked. So if you're saying it's gotten better, I definitely want to try it. I absolutely do love Photoshop Express. Oh yeah. Photoshop Express is fantastic. It is so stupidly powerful. Like I, I edit a lot of my photo content just on my phone using that app. Like I'll use Photoshop, obviously, if I got to do a deep dive and like do some hardcore, like cutting, pasting, layering, but man, just to do color correction, vignetting, a little bit of highlight here. Uh, my Instagram is pretty much run through my Photoshop, uh, express app. It's like so freaking useful. It's amazing what you can do on a phone nowadays. Nice. What's uh, one website you recommend to people often? I'm one of those weird guys that's barely on websites anymore, man. Like I, I oh, pretty why? much just stick to social media platforms. No, 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 no. But I mean, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't really do websites anymore. Like unless it's somebody's business that I know. Okay. Like I used to be about this one film website called Dark Horizons. Uh, that was a good film journalism website. Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember that, like, that site. Yeah. Yeah with a uh, Garth or Gareth or something, a guy from Australia that I, I would talk to occasionally. Um, no, no, I just, I barely use websites anymore. And that might be my problem. Maybe I need to get back on more websites. I don't know. <laughs> What's your favorite piece of tech besides your phone and your computer? Uh, let's see. Um, I still like my car a lot, but no, to give like a serious answer. Um, so my rig for video production is a Sony Alpha 6500 uh, mirrorless um, DS. I guess it's kind of like a DSLR. Yep. I mean, I know mirrorless and DSLR are kind of different things, but it's 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 one of those cameras. I use it for all my main video production uh, outside of using my phone. And what it does that I really like is that out of the box, you get 120 frames per second at 1080p. Uh, it's at a decent bit rate. It looks really good. I actually pull still images from it a lot when we're doing action uh, stuff, because if we're doing like a workshop or something like that, instead of filming at 4k, which I know I'm never going to really use, or instead of trying to take photo after photo after photo, we just record the workshop in 120p and we get really great. Yeah. They're a little bit low res, but they're going to social media platforms most likely anyways. Yep. We get really great builds out of that from every angle. And because it's 120p, there's like no blur. And when you're doing action, the hardest thing to get out is the blur. So I can go frame by frame by frame and find the perfect frame of any workshop that we teach from 120p video that 
is in a codec that's compressed enough that it doesn't take up a gajillion gigabytes on my hard drive. The other thing that it does out of the box is it does do a 4K, which is pretty good, but it's kind of a battery eater. But my favorite thing is that this camera is lightweight enough that I can put on my Evo Rage S gimbal. Um, so they're like another one of those gimbal companies. They're competitive with like Zune and stuff like that. I think they're out of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it was a $500 piece of equipment. It's a single handlebar gimbal. And oh my God, like you put this camera that has optical stabilization built in on board and has optical op, uh, optical stabilization built into the lens, has the fastest, at the time at least, I don't know if anything's come out since, the fastest autofocus of any DSLR camera that was out at the time. And you put the autofocus lens on, you can record anything with one hand That's and awesome. put your other hand on the buffet table and just feed your freaking face while recording <laughs> things in 120p in full autofocus uh, with decent low light with an absolutely silky smooth digital image um, that just looks competitive with a, a like, I mean, there's, there's definitely higher level cameras, but man, like this rig that I put together has been so useful for everything I do, including fight scenes, including documentary, including promotional video. Uh, it's, and you can train other people to use it pretty quick. And that's also very advantageous. Nice. Um, I know you mentioned uh, the book of five rings. Was that the last book you read? And if it wasn't, what was the last book you read? I am so bad at reading. I will tell you the last book that I was working on. So yeah, and I was listening to book of five rings. I have read a version of it before, but this one was narrated by some British guy. So it sounded really cool. Anyways, um, uh, I've been reading uh, the fighter's heart by, I think it's Sam Sheridan. Um, he's another MMA guy, but he, he never, I don't think he ever competed in UFC, but uh, he worked for like men's fitness or men's journal or something like that as a writer. And he traveled to Thailand, did some Thai boxing and like the part of the book that I'm in right now, he's traveled to Brazil to do some Brazilian jujitsu. And he traveled to like Midwest United States to train with a uh, Militech in his gym. And like uh, he trained with all these guys and he's just a very insightful writer that it's like, it's, it's this great book about, why we do some of the things that we do, even when they hurt. But the guy is not trying to be a professional fighter. He's just trying to explore who these people are that decide to do it. And I guess that's where the title of the book comes from. And it's it's a lot of fun. It's nonfiction. I don't read a lot of nonfiction, but I'm really digging this one. Um, hmm. All right. And, and then I will say, though, that the last book that I more or less finished, I think I got to the last chapter and then picked up something else because I was lazy, was called Not the Life It Seems, which is an, is an unofficial biography of the band My Chemical Romance. Oh, okay. Uh, but it's by a guy that had, like, interviewed them a dozen times for, like, Kerrang! or something like that. So he pulls a lot of the stories from his own interviews and everything. So it's pretty official. And, man, their story as a band, like, they're my favorite band. It's, like, my favorite music, hands down, is, like, their four albums. It's, like, it's just so inspiring to hear about a bunch of, like, weird kids that got together and made everybody feel inspired through like dark themes, but this sense of like not being alone. So the book is really good. And even just the chapter on how they wrote black parade in a haunted mansion is like amazing. Nice. Now, you know, we, we talked about all these different items, but, but the thing that everybody always has a blast with this question, what was the something you purchased recently that was less than a hundred dollars that made your life either easier or just more enjoyable? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, 
<laughs> Everybody uh, always has, it could be anything. So uh, most no, 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 no. Fine, uh, that's that's great. Uh, so I have a Microsoft Surface Pro tablet, which is I, I have the most recent one. When they stopped numbering them, they just started calling them Surface Pros. Right. Um, I got it like two and a half years ago before I went to the Philippines. That is not the piece of technology I'm talking about. Okay. Um, I literally went to a Walgreens the other day and saw that they had on the store shelf this stupid little stand-up desk table stand for laptops. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've like, seen those. Yeah. And I mean, you think it's like, like I'm looking at the box. It's called like Airspace or something like that. It's clearly in their made as seen on TV section. And it's like, all right, it's a little dinky. It's a little lightweight. It's not like a $200 piece of equipment, but it's like, we've been trying to record all these shows and everything. Every single time I try and set up this laptop, because the major thing with the, the Surface Pro is that, yes, it does have this really cool uh, tilt kickstand, but there's no way to lean it forward. Yep. Because it's not a laptop screen where it's like reinforced, where you can like tilt it down. You can only really tilt it back. Otherwise, it'll just clap shut like a clam. Like buying this thing and being able to set up my freaking tablet, which is where I prefer to do all like my uh, my Zoom conversations and my uh, my recording if I got to go on a screen like that instead of my phone. It was just super practical and super useful. And it was like, I don't know, like 35, 40 bucks. And it just always remember that like, if you're out there and you're using a computer, make a setup that's somewhat ergonomic, like whether that's like a standing desk or just something where you can get up and move around every once in a while, because man, like even I am such a, I'm such a, a culprit of this doing video editing. I'll sit there or like playing Sekiro. I'll sit there for like five hours, not moving. And it's like, Oh, this is not good for you. Nope. Definitely so, not. <laughs> uh, impromptu standing desk instead of using like a bunch of books and boxes. That's the short answer. There you go. Um, you know, we, we talk, we talked about some tech. I got to talk about some toys. I know that we had, uh, the, you know, especially with your profession, you have a lot of cool toys. Um, tell me a little bit about your favorite ones when it comes to professional quote unquote toys. Um, you talking like training weapons yeah. and stuff like that, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like for instance, uh, saga action arts, uh, just kind of got like, I don't know if it's sponsored or something. I'm still getting used to influencer culture, but we got a lot of free training weapons from a company called S&R Tactical. Right. Uh, we have been sure to do our own little background check on them to make sure everything's kosher in this very trying time um, where we're looking at tactical people and we're wondering how far down the political spectrum they might be going into crazy town. <laughs> um, and, and it seems like this is a pretty legit business. I mean, they're from Texas, but I'm not going to hold that against them. There you uh, go. I actually like Texas a fair amount. Uh, really great training gear affordable prices. Uh, again, I'm not going to like say Abra and I order stuff off of Amazon all the time. So they do have a store on Amazon that you can order through. Uh, it's safe. It's fun. Uh, they got training knives. They got training sticks. They just built uh, two different batons. Some of it based off of my feedback, uh, expanding uh, stuff, uh, uh, batons that you can train with if you want to that are made out of plastic and are stage safe. Um, polypropylene machetes and training guns if you're into that kind of stuff nice. if you're not into that kind of stuff <laughs> more power to you but like if you need solid props to train with or if you need uh gear we're really enjoying what they put together uh and then it's like you know obviously you can go with cold steel and stuff like that but sometimes their products are a little limiting uh it just depends on what you want to find um 
one of my favorite stores to go to has been in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I hope that they're still online, but that's uh, Asian World of Martial Arts is basically the uh, the Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory of martial arts gear. If you go there, you can find any sort of training weapon, any sort of uniform, uh, any sort of gear for martial arts training. It's right outside of Philly. And they also have a huge online store, which I'm sure is still going. And uh, uh, I definitely recommend them. They've been really helpful. They gave us a huge deal when I first started my business. And I bought like 100 Escrima sticks to give to my clients. And like nice. they gave me like a 60% discount. So they were really helpful. What was your favorite toy or collectible when you were a kid? I was really spoiled up until age 10. Like my parents bought me like a lot of t- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toys. They bought me like a lot of Transformers toys. Uh, I never got like the Transformers that transformed. I got the weird action figure ones that were yep. kind of like G.I. Joe toys. Yep. Like, do you remember those? Yeah, I do actually. Those actually have a decent resale value. And oddly enough, Hasbro's actually re-releasing a line similar to that where they don't transform and they're all action figures. Yeah, it's great that they have a resale value because I like snapped all of them in half as a kid, like horribly. Because like I, I, I dude, I've been playing hard with storytelling since I was a kid, man. My my action figures would go at it. So, um, uh, and I had two younger brothers. Uh, so there are no resale valuable toys in my house, unfortunately. <laughs> I've thought about it, but man. I'd have to clean them all up. But I had all that. Like I was a kid out of the late '80s, so I had Ninja Turtles, I had Transformers, um, I had some Power Rangers stuff. Uh, had a little bit of nerf. Um, I loved all of it. Uh, I can't really think about like what was my absolute favorite. I actually really liked the the Terminator Two toys that came out. I thought those were really cool. Oh yeah, um, I actually had some know. of those. They were um, they had like the uh, the exoskeleton you could buy. Then they had one that the uh, it looked like Schwarzenegger and the arm was melted off. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I got that one, and you could actually like put on different uh, attachments for it for whatever reason. I have it, it too. Really I actually cool have it in the toy box I found recently. Holy crap, that's awesome. I should put a photo on Facebook <laughs> later. We could have a few laughs about it. Yeah. God, they used to call the T-800 uh, exoskeleton or the endoskeleton or whatever. They used to call it the turbo punch. Yep, that's right. I was like, that's not what that thing was called, but good on you for selling <laughs> it to children. I, I, okay, okay. Now I know. Now I know. Now you're refreshing my brain. Gosh, man, you're taking me back. Um, I was as big into Aliens and Predator as people are into Star Trek and Star Wars. Yep. Um, I know what a yatja is. Like, I'm that much of a nerd. I've read, like, a dozen Predator novels from, like, my 20s into my 30s, like, even though they're kind of, like, trash and everything like that. But, I mean, they're not bad. They're really good. Um, I have always been a fan of the Aliens franchise. My mom actually let me watch Terminator 2 and Aliens when I was five years old. Nice. So that should explain everything we've just been talking about for the last two hours. Like That makes two of us. My mom let me watch some of that yeah. stuff, too. So, yep, I'm right there with you. I, I saw the 1989 Batman movie in theaters, and I was born in 1987. Yep, there you go. So that's that's all on my mom. Like, I owe <laughs> all of this to her. Like, <laughs> I, I'm crazy about this stuff because I was imprinted with it at a very young age. Whether that was psychologically damaging or not, I'm not going to say, but clearly I've tried to put it to good use. <laughs> uh, but like the aliens toys and the predator toys, like those were like, like the Ninja Turtles were fine when I was five, but I think the AVP toys were like my thing from like six to eight or nine. And yep. I was just like a huge fan of like how creative they got with that universe through the toys. Because if you know, the movies is like, well, there's a predator and there's an alien. That's right. And with the toys, they were like, 
well, there's a facehugger queen and there's like a rhino alien and there's this hunter predator and yep. there's this stalker predator. And there's, I was like, oh man, this is so cool. Like all these different variations were really freaking cool. And they weren't McFarlane either. Like nope. they were all Hasbro, but they were really freaking unique. Yep. They They're were ahead awesome. of their time. I have, I have a few of them and it was crazy too, because those were, they, um, the thing about it was I, I, I was reading the, the alien and predator novels when I was a kid too. And I remember the one, where the girl helped the predators and she joined their tribe and became like the first human predator hunter. And um, I remember when the movie finally got made and I was like, oh, they're going to adapt the book. And they didn't. And I was so bummed. (laughs) Oh, dude, I'm right there with you. And like my like, I think my like 16 year old brain thought the movie the first time I saw it was really good. But I was like, I knew I was just telling myself it was good. I wanted to find Paul W. Anderson and just punch him in the face. Like my goal for getting into the film industry was like to punch him for making that <laughs> AVP movie and like not doing it right. Because you're right. The novelization of alien versus predator. I think the first book's called prey. Yep. Um, that was written by Steven Stephanie Perry, Stephanie Perry, who's also known as SD Perry. I've actually friended her on Facebook and I wrote her a message being like, dude, you wrote the AVP book. That was so cool. You wrote that way. And she wrote like a bunch of Resident Evil novelizations. And she's just a really fun writer. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. So getting to just reach out to her on Facebook and be like, you wrote my childhood, like was awesome. <laughs> uh, that that book with the character Machiko Noguchi. That's right. Dude, I know that book like cover to cover. And like, I actually make other people read that book. Like I'll throw a copy of them and I'll be like, look, if you want to know what this is supposed to be, yep. this is how awesome be it's such a cool story and i think the original comic the predators didn't have any dialogue like they didn't i haven't yeah it was dots and dashes to find a copy of the what it was dots and dashes like a lot of their dialogue yeah yeah so it was all just but in the book because you can't do that in a book yep they actually came up with their own language and they came up with their own like personalities and everything it was like this is a really cool like sci-fi monster culture like it really does expand it and it's from their perspective so you get the human perspectives you get the predator perspectives you get like eight different perspectives throughout the book and like you don't really get an alien perspective but that's fine but it's like man if someone made the actual movie version of this this would be so cool and the last thing i'll say about that is that someone actually started making a cgi version of it uh a fan cgi film of it and uh avp planet or AVP Galaxy was like advertising it, like saying it was coming out. And then right before the the Fox one uh, happened, Fox killed it, said, no, you can't make this. We're making our own movie. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) And then their movie came out. I was like, God damn it. Yep. It was, it was, uh, was I I felt so let down. And then they did the second one with the, with the predator alien hybrid. And I was like, all right, just, just stop. Just, just, just hang it up. I, I, I at least, I, I at least appreciate ABP Requiem because at least the aliens are scary and the predator yeah. is like a mean mother because it's like, yep. they, they look like overweight pro wrestlers in ABP one. Yep, like absolutely. Didn't, they didn't look like predators and they had like a freaking fight scene where they were throwing each other around. And it's like, that's, they're supposed to be space samurai, man. Come yep. on. It's true. Well, the, yeah. The, so the, that's, that's my big thing <laughs> that that universe was like, that's my, that's my home is that universe. That's pretty dope. The uh, the last question to wrap up the hot seat. Um, obviously, being in the industry, what is your favorite fight scene of all time? Oh, uh, <clears throat> damn, dude. Uh, 
I wish I had like a quick go-to answer for that. I wish I had a quick go-to answer for all your questions because your podcast is either going to be cut to pieces or going to be four hours long. Um, I have a couple that are like my absolute favorites. Uh, one of them that always comes to the, and I think it's just the one that always pops out is there's this final fight in this Korean film called the man from nowhere. Yep. I know Uh, that movie. You've seen that one. Yep. So truth be told, I've seen the actual movie one and a half times. I've watched that final fight, like maybe a hundred times. Like I've, I've written like little Facebook post essays about just how much I love and adore that final fight. It's not an action heavy movie. No, it's like four or five fight scenes in the entire film, but that final final throwdown between him and the gangsters and the assassins is so poetic. The musical score is the best music I've ever heard to a fight scene ever. Um, And the amount of character that goes into that moment from his switch moment, when the MacGuffin in the scene is like destroyed, I'm going to call it a MacGuffin. I don't want to do spoilers, but it's so intense when the bad guy shines on and tries to torment the good guy. And then when the good guy has a switch moment, you just see all of a sudden it's a fight scene where our hero like, okay, Batman scares bad guys. No, 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 no. The Punisher scares bad guys. No, 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 no. This, this Korean character makes everybody in the room absolutely terrified of him in his quest for revenge. And it's like, it's so beautiful in the sense that you know that this character is so hurt and so damaged and he's going to make these people pay for it. And I'm not like a huge revenge porn sort of guy but it's so real and so well done and it's one of the only times in a fight scene where shaky cam is effective yep because the shaky cam conveys the perspective of the people watching this guy being absolutely terrified of how he's moving and they're like not able to keep up with him and they're just like oh we're screwed oh we're, we're we're dead this guy we we should not have pushed him um so that's definitely one of my top ones and then the only other one that I'll say for today is uh, to kind of keep it a little bit short. Yep. Is and this this is weird because it's like I'm not saying Jackie Chan or Jet Li. I do think there's amazing fight scenes from all those guys. I love the final fight in Way of the Dragon with Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris. But like one of my other favorite final fights, the stuff that I pull inspiration from when I try and make fight scenes is actually the uh, fight between Mad Max and Furiosa. Nice. And the uh, and the Bride and Nux in Fury Road. Yep where they first meet and everything is a weapon. Every character is involved and every shot tells the story and it's quick cut, Yep. but it's all center frame weighted. And it's just like every moment, something interesting happens and the physicality is fantastic. And again, the music is incredible and the performances are just, it's like, holy crap, everything just went to hell. And these characters are literally fighting every single second. One of them could die. And that is so different from a martial arts movie fight where like people are throwing punches at each other a hundred times over. And it's like, well, there's risk, but not yet. Yep. Every beat in the fight is like so tense. Like he's pulling out a shotgun. She's pulling out a fire hose. He's in a mask. Like I just, I love it. And I think it's one of the best fight scenes to come out in like the last 20 years. I, you know, it, it, it was funny just, uh, I did want to add, you know, one thing I enjoyed about the man from nowhere is I was a big fan of the movie, the professional, so yeah yeah we on yeah yep so i loved a lot of that 
inspiration that was in that movie that because I just enjoyed the the cinematography of that movie and how well it was done. And the man from nowhere definitely did that. So it's actually cool. You know, I was really blown away. You picked that. That's that's such an underrated flick for and, and especially and it's uh, aged uh, well, uh, too. It, no, it really has. Like, it's still completely watchable. I really yep. need to go back and watch the whole thing again. I just I do remember loving the story when I watched it. I just I, I haven't had the time to sit down and watch it all over again since. But like. It it does pull from Leon, and then it's also like, hey, for everybody that liked the movie Taken, yep. go watch. This is the Korean version of Taken. The gravitas is so much higher. The fights are so much better. I, I don't dislike the fights in Taken. I think they're fine for what they are. But like, and I love Liam Neeson. I love me some Liam Neeson. But like, this 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 guy is so good in this movie, and uh, it's definitely one of the best. It's such a it's such an archetype now when you think of things like. The Last of Us and Bioshock Infinite and every other video game, how there's like some big, strong, older guy taking yep. care of a young woman. 100%. And this, like you were saying, like with Leon, which if you watch the full director's cut of The Professional, you're like, okay, this is starting to go into creepy projection territory. Mm-hmm. Luke Basson, could you could not freak me out here and tell me about your underage girl power fantasy? Like, I actually like the theatrical cut better because while I do appreciate those scenes for the performances, I do see why the audience would react negatively to them. Absolutely. And I think there was a halfway point Luke Besson could have gone with. Um, but I love, I cry at the end of The Professional, man. I love that movie. Uh, but The Man from Nowhere, from what I remember, is just, it doesn't have that part to it. It's a very genuine relationship because this guy is just like Leon. He's kind of on the fringe. He just wants to protect this girl. And then someone screws with him and they make the wrong choice by doing it. And the ending just kills you because you don't know which way it's going to go. There you go. It's so good. It's so good. The, uh, the the last part of our interview, I like to call reach one, teach one, just to give our listeners something actionable that they could work on on the way out. Um, for you, especially with such a diverse career, I'm just going to keep it very simple. Um, for someone that's yeah. uh, 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 starting, uh, you know, whether they're starting out in the in the stunt industry or starting out as a martial artist, What's one piece of actionable advice you'd give a person that's just starting out? That's really great because uh, I was asked that question earlier by um, by this uh, student that I'm trying to consult with. Uh, she's moving to Kansas City. I don't like I said, I don't know if it's Missouri or I thought it was Oklahoma. <laughs> but anyways, uh, she hasn't done like a lot of martial arts before. And I was like, well, what's your physical background? And she was like, well, I did tennis and I did basketball and I did volleyball. And I'm like, great, you're you're already so far ahead because you have any physical background. So like step number one is like, don't be intimidated by it. Uh, When it's actionable, it's like what's actionable is yes. Realize it's going to be different. Yes. Realize it's going to be something you might not be used to, but don't let anybody scare you off because if they're trying to scare you off, don't be a part of that school. Like just seriously, don't, if they're trying to play like the, this is the deadly art of blah, blah, blah. I don't think you can handle it. Good. Don't handle it. Leave. Because screw those people. Uh, the number one thing that has to change about martial arts culture, and Brian and I are actually going to start a podcast about this soon, is you've got to get rid of the toxicity in it. It's just, it's not functional in this day and age. It's actually bad. It puts a bad name on martial arts. It puts a bad name on uh, personal development. Um, it just, it hurts because it doesn't actually make martial arts last. More people will give up martial arts than they'll continue because of the toxic culture. And the people that will continue with it will get brainwashed. Um, we're going to start a podcast called like the ethical martial artist podcast. So what I'm saying is really what's actionable is when you go looking for it, 
take your free trial class. You can always find a free trial class or something like that. And if you jam with the instructor, great. If you don't and you find them a little weird or a little discouraging or a little creepy, because it's another it's another position that, you know, historically has dudes in power positions. And I'm saying this a lot for like women, I guess, but it's it's for men too, or anybody of any yep. gender or whatever, like whatever you are, it it's a toxic place where people want to feel like they're in power. And they're going to try and hold that over your head with either belt systems or the magic pill or something like this, or how can you kill three guys with a spoon? And it's like, no, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is the only martial art you'll ever need. Well, I want to learn a little bit of it, but I disagree with you. Then get out of my school. Okay. Like your, your most actionable thing is being able to say no and keep going until you find the people that you like. Even if it's a martial art that makes no dang sense, if it's, if it's, Steven Seagal styled Aikido. And it's like absolute, I'm not saying all Aikido is BS. A lot of Aikido is amazing. But if it's, if it's a school where it's like, maybe it's not the most practical martial art on the planet, or if it's Kung Fu and all you're doing is forms work and you're not sparring like I did when I first started, if you're enjoying it and it's not hurting you, who am I to tell you that it's bad? Like, so that, I know that's not necessarily actionable, but you have to have a mindset before you go looking for martial arts. That's what I would say is actionable. There you go. Set up your mind, set up your goals and know what you're willing to deal with and what you're not willing to deal with because you do not want five years down the road to realize, man, I was being brainwashed by that guy. That is, that is the absolute thing I don't want for anybody. And uh, you will get so much more value out of what you seek out if you do it with a clear and confident head. And you don't let somebody else get inside your head and try and screw with you because it's, it's, it's abusive and you'll make the world a better place by being present in what you're doing and not letting it change you in a way that you didn't want it to. Hell, I think that's, that's as actionable as you can get. And it also helps establish a mindset to go in there. So I, I appreciate you sharing that with our audience. And, and I also want to make it like really clear, like you asked me that question and my first answer wasn't. We'll sign up for Saga Action Arts. Nope. Like, I, I thought about that, like, one minute into me giving you, like, that 10-minute answer. And I was <laughs> like, I didn't promote myself because I don't care if you sign up with me. I mean, I'll, I'll be really happy if you do. But, man, it's a very personal, it's a very personal journey. Yep. You have to enjoy it as much as you possibly can. So do that. Set yourself up for success because... If it's not going to be a career, it's going to be a hobby. And if it's going to be a hobby, spend your money and time doing something that you love. Makes sense to me. Well, with that said, and this is usually how we close things out, where can people find you and keep up with what you're doing? <laughs> Thanks. Um, there is a sagaactionarts.com. It's not a website right now. It's uh, a link to an Instagram account because that's how I built my business. I started with Instagram and then I eventually made a Facebook platform, which you can also find. Uh, basically if you Google saga action arts, you'll find our YouTube channel, which we got over a hundred subscribers. So I was able to change that to youtube.com backslash saga action arts, facebook.com, uh, look for the saga action arts page. There's probably hyphens in there. And on Instagram, it's like at underscore at saga underscores action. Just type in the URL. Um, <laughs> I'll put the links really for it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. I'm not really active on Twitter with saga, but there is a saga account. I just can't remember my password for it. So somebody help me. Um, but, uh, uh, and then, yeah, if you find me Dylan hints, uh, you can message me on any social media platform. 
Uh, you know, my phone number's out there if you really want to reach out, but really just like send me a Gmail, sagaactionarts at gmail.com and be like, yo, I want to train or yo, where can I find other training? Or, you know, uh, hey, I saw this movie. What do you think? And I'll probably engage with you a little bit. But I really want to push people to our YouTube channel because we have nearly 100 hours of free training content upload on that YouTube channel it includes workouts, morning routine, uh, season one, which was 37, 36 episodes long, uh, which is just every day you watch my psychosis through the pandemic as I try and do these mobility and body awareness exercises. Uh, and we have a whole community involved in those videos. And we've got all of our curriculum and the skill development sessions. And we've even got action arts classes where you can watch us on the fly develop fight choreography live to camera. Uh, so please just go and check that out because we're, we just want to give it all away and inspire other people to do whatever they feel like doing, um, inspire people to inspire other people. There you go. Well, Dylan, I thank you for taking the time to share the toys and tech of your trade. Well, thank you very much, Rich. And uh, stay strong and be that hero you want to be. And uh, thank you for having me. Man, what an awesome conversation with Dylan Hintz from Saga Action Arts. We probably could have spoke for another hour or two and even after we wrapped up the interview, Dylan and I agreed that a second interview is a must because there's so many things that we didn't even get to explore. Not only that, but there was just so much stuff that we could nerd out about, whether it's uh, action films, fights, martial arts, etc. There's there's so much stuff. And I definitely feel that we could probably do an, another two hour episode just on that stuff alone. So definitely be on the lookout for that. Maybe when things open up, we'll visit Saga and do some stuff on location. We'll see what happens. Speaking of Saga Action Arts, we're going to include links for everything related to Saga Action Arts in the show notes for this episode, as well as links to some of the stuff that Dylan and I discussed. As always, some of those things may be affiliate links, which if you click, will receive a small commission, which of course goes towards helping us give you guys better content, whether it's on the site, on our podcasts, or on our YouTube channel. So feel free to Use those links as you wish. Every little bit helps. And of course, if you want to keep up with us, you can find us on social media at RageWorks pretty much everywhere. And links for all of our different social media accounts will be in the show notes for this episode. As always, thank you guys for checking out Toys and Tech of the Trade. And we'll see you in two weeks with a brand new episode. And man, do we have some awesome guests to take us through the summer. So can't wait to share it with you folks. Thanks for checking us out. We really, really appreciate it. That's it. I'm out of here. Peace.
Toys and Tech of the Trade is part of the RageWorks Podcast Network, your source for rants about gaming, entertainment, and the works. Visit us at RageWorksNetwork.com. With the new iPhone SE for less than 100 bucks at Metro, you rule. It's the most affordable iPhone on the number one brand in prepaid. So whether you're studying online or FaceTiming. Hey, Mom. Hi, dear. The iPhone SE has all you need. Switch to Metro and get the iPhone SE for $99.99 after rebate redemption and six months of service with AutoPay. Metro by T-Mobile. Rule your day. Limit one per account slash household. Requires port and ID validation. Not valid for numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. Restrictions apply. See store for details. Hey, I'm Kayla. As a mom working from home, life is crazier than ever, especially on days like these. But I'm still ruling my day thanks to Metro. Metro gave me an awesome phone and tablet. Now my son can get his homework done on the tablet without needing to borrow my laptop. Plus, with Metro, Amazon Prime is included, so I can access great deals and discounts on school essentials and get them delivered in no time with unlimited free shipping, all while keeping an eye on my son to make sure he finishes his online practice tests before he starts watching his favorite Amazon originals. Right now, get a new phone and tablet on us when you switch to Metro, the number one brand in prepaid. Plus, enjoy high-speed data on both devices with one Amazon Prime membership included for just $75 a month. Metro by T-Mobile, rule your day. I'm Kayla, and that's how I rule my day with Metro. With new lines of service after rebate redemption plus sales tax and activation fee. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members on select rate plans. Amazon Prime has a $12.99 a month cost. Restrictions apply.